and we're live. I did, with David. Not, I did not have trailer park <laughs> synthwave edit with Eric Donald <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> it's the aesthetic for the the aesthetic for the uh for Thomas reviews varies all over the place. Actually, I just know I need to change the background because we're still on the Mariton background for there we go. Okay. We're a very professional podcast that we had, David. We have five different shows and none of us know what we're doing. Hell yeah. Okay. We're so we're, back. We're so back. <laughs> like we never even left. The, the, we're so back, it's so over X uh, Y XY uh, axis. You know, we yeah, overlap. Where are you on the <laughs> it's so over to we're so back spectrum? They are the same. <laughs> It's a, it's a horseshoe theory. <laughs> it's a horseshoe, yes. I, I found this and then in the middle is nothing ever happens. <laughs> I am on the business that nothing ever happens, and then out of nowhere we're going to have a giant climax. I, I, I think right now the American politics can best be described as edging. <sighs> Good <laughs> lord. And we're just being edged and edged every news event, and eventually there's going to be a climax. It's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin a sock, and the sock is the Mason. But... Good lord. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Caleb, do you want to introduce topics. what we're doing or, or should I? We are going to be doing a live reading. Well, first, it's the beginning of a series where we're going to cover the four volumes of Peter Creep's History of Philosophy, Socrates' Children. Um, which is a fantastic, it's a very, it's um. I love it because it's a it's a perfect medium ground. You know, is, is a history of philosophy like one book and they brand, they cover a whole bunch in very short paragraphs, or the thirteen volumes like Father Frederick Carpenter's. Creeps is right in the middle ground. It's just enough information about each philosopher that it's perfect for beginners. Listen, I got it for forty. I got the set for forty five bucks when Word on Fire had a sale on it. I just had to nice. dive at that because I wanted to learn more <laughs> philosophy, and I've since started collecting more of like the philosophy texts proper. So eventually, I'll get to reading those. But I should read this first, and so this will be useful for really delving into that stuff. So this this year, I can really I can stave off the philosophy kick for now and just kind of delve into like uh, more more like theology and economics which is my more my interest and then i can do this as well to kind of get introduced to all the concepts yeah well this is a, this is great because i think um one thing that's very important with philosophy that i found is that um until the protestant reformation every philosopher built off every other philosopher aristotle was built off of plato and argued against um heraclitus and parmenides um, not built out his metaphysics. Uh, St. Aquinas built on St. Augustine and St. Anselm. Scotus built on Bonaventure and Augustine and Plato. And then you have, you know, Kant responding to Hume. Hume responding to Kant. You have uh, um, Adam Smith coming in. Sartre responding to all of them. So it all, it all kind of built. So having a good wide context of history and knowing who was writing when, what time periods, what they were dealing with historically, who they were writing against and writing for is very helpful for putting these ideas in context. Yeah, I, I think Kreeft really talks about Peter Kreeft. Sorry, Kreeft, Kreeft. I'm I feel terrible for not knowing which is the correct like pronunciate pronounce. I think it's Kreeft. Yeah, Peter Kreeft. Well, he I think he talks about how you could realistically just call this this set like 
Um, I think it was Socrates's footnotes was another one that he he said you could <laughs> talk about. Where it's essentially it's all footnotes to Socrates, where Socrates was the first guy who decided to really think. The rest of the guys were kind of just throwing out nonsense onto the wall. <laughs> and then Socrates actually could think, and then everyone else started building off of Socrates from there. He is a and he. I mean, I'm you know white trash Socrates. That is my guy. Even when even when I see Aristotle read Aristotle, I'm like, yeah, he's right, but. I think the Socrates method is not only more fun, it feels more true, even if I can't explain it as well as an Aristotelian point, you know? Listen, the guy was just enough. Well, we'll get to Socrates eventually in the series, but like Socrates I mean, was just a massive troll who got himself killed for for being a smart ass. Well, he was, dude, I could go on for hours just about the trial and death of Socrates. I think, like, besides, like, the two most influential, the Western civilization is built on the deaths of two men. Both Christ and democracy. Socrates. Yeah, and Christ and Socrates, democracy. right? It's a uh, can't remember who said that, but like, I, I heard the first Christ mentions this specifically in yeah. in this. So it's, we'll definitely get to it. And when we get to that's gonna probably be an hour or two hour episode because there's so much I could say about Socrates. I think I've read I've read all Plato, I've read every book I could find on Socrates. I I as I, I love much I love like um Ludwig Wittgenstein's arguments. He hates Socrates, and so therefore I have to hate him. It's just how that works. I mean, um, but we'll get to him again him like you know 40 episodes from now yeah right and i mean like i mean i i think so the, i think the way we've decided it's going to work we're going to read through these sections of the book and then offer our commentary i'm going to ask stupid questions since i'm the uninitiated you're going to hopefully help me explain those or we'll both feign ignorance and be like yeah it's probably not important because they're german or something and then, yes. and we're going to go yes. through probably the the smaller chapters like multiple per episode when we get to those but then when we hit someone like socrates or we hit someone like plato or aristotle or aquinas mm -hmm. or augustine or i always say i like to say augustine but whatever uh or augustine augustine separate because i live in florida and I so august suppose. augustine is the location augustine is a saint that's how you got i gotta keep him that way fair enough i'll probably just keep saying augustine because i always think augustine's confessions but um mm. when we get to these larger sections of the book books plural because it's a multi-volume set we're going to spend like singular episodes on these more important philosophers like you know socrates plato aquinas aristotle uh, augustine uh kant marx maybe i don't know we'll get into those right yeah marx is marx is gonna be a weird one because i wouldn't even i wouldn't classify him as a philosopher at all but yeah he was more of like just a political you know he was just kind of a loser to be honest he really was um I, I don't know. I, I, if I had to place him, I'd honestly place him as like an economist or an historian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard I've heard some people that I've argued with online say that um he's not a philosopher, he's not a he's not a, an economist because he was all wrong. It's like, well, you can be, you can, your 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 thinking can align to a certain kind of philosophy, even if it's incredibly stupid, right? Yeah. Like you know. If a, if a little kid is like just trying to talk about like loose metaphysics, it's still like thoughts about philosophy, even if it's nonsensical. And just like yeah. Marx, like he he was trying to do like he was trying to do economics, but he just didn't know what he was talking about because he was a child. And a, well, we'll, and we'll get to a, Marx. Yeah, and I I probably have a weird take on Marx. I actually think some of his can. Because I'm a, I'm a bedrock on distributism. I think some of the Marxist complaints are well founded, but I think a lot of the all of the solutions are just you know anti-Christian, so therefore they are evil. 
because all inherently you get egalitarian. Um, but I do think he, has, I think he has some fair complaints. I think it's proper to address those complaints correctly. You know. Yeah. See, I, I I will go on the fence and say I do think Marx was a philosopher because eventually you'll get to things like we'll it'll probably talk about his theory of like the substructure and the superstructure and stuff like that, where it really does seem very much more like almost sociological, more philosophical than his like typical. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I don't know. I don't know much about Hegel at all, so I'm excited to finally get to understand what, what the heck people mean by, like, Hege- Hegelian dialect or something. And the zeitgeist. Yeah. Well, I know what zeitgeist means. That, that's just the spirit of an age, but... Yeah. yeah well, um, is an interesting one. There's actually, um, if you had sense, an inspiring philosophy on YouTube. He was a huge liberal vegan atheist philosopher who was raised Catholic and came, all came out of things. And in true reading Hegel... Was like, you know, it actually makes good sense. Let me go back and read these Aquinas arguments, and then became a Catholic. Hey, I'm, and so I'm here for it. So he has, he has Hegel proofs. He makes Hegelian arguments for God, <laughs> which are very interesting. He's a very but, interesting. He's still a vegan, still a socialist, so he's not great. But those two on on pure philosophy, he's really good. The the Hegel to a, a to Thomas pipeline is real. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I. Been, yeah, so I think we we, we decided we were going to go over the sages because in the at the beginning of the book, uh, he sets aside like four sages who weren't really necessarily philosophers, but they kind of had like the very first like philosophical thoughts, and they're kind of like the underpinnings for their various civilizations. I think it's it's how many of them are there? There's eight. There's eight. So are we gonna, just going to go over four today? It's only, it's only, it's only thirty eight pages. I think we can kind of knock it out. Yeah, well, thir- Sorry, well 36 looks- pages. It's not even. It's not even it's- 36 pages because it starts on page five. So it's like it's oh, yeah. it's 30 pages if we want to talk on Muhammad for a bit. Which um, I do because Muhammad was a white guy who liked to be bukkakied on. So I want to complain about him. Okay, well, we'll get to we'll get to that. But yeah, we're going to start with the sages who weren't really philosophers, but they were kind of like pseudo philosophers. They offered kind of philosophical thoughts, but they didn't really quite get and to I, like where Socrates was or maybe they even came after necessarily. But we're going to we're going to touch on those today and then we'll dive into the Greeks and and then in 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 and Greeks, some moments, and then more of the modern, uh, the middle, middle ages, middle medieval questions. Yeah, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna get into that right um, once we finish and I, this. I will maybe not maybe object, but I don't, I don't know how to how to put this. Defining who and who is not a philosopher is very tricky because I would say philosophy is those who love wisdom, and you can't be wise if you're wrong. So I would say if you're wrong, you're not a philosopher. But that's a very strict <laughs> definition of that word, and kind of a, it's, a, it's a way for me to write out people I don't like. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that if you want to talk about Muhammad for a are, bit, I mean, there are subset. <laughs> there are subsets to. Um, <laughs> There, there are subsets to philosophy, of course, where you can even – where obviously, like, say, if we're looking at economics, economics would probably be a subset of philosophy. Yeah, it's applied and ethics. So, yeah, it's applied ethics. And so there is just so many different branches. So technically, it can all be philosophy. Like, all wisdom boils down to philosophy, right? You have to have yeah. philosophical underpinnings so that way you pe- people can understand what it is you're talking yeah. about. So it's not just nonsense you're throwing onto the wall and hoping sticks. And I will say, um, Kreeft later, after he wrote this book, he wrote a second book called The Greatest Philosopher Who Ever Lived, 
where he opens up with, uh, in my four-bar mystery of philosophy, I included zero women. And I, uh, <laughs> incorrect, that was wrong of me because the greatest uh, philosopher of all time was a woman. Her name was Mary. Because mm. Jesus, was, Jesus was wisdom. Who loved Jesus more than his own mother? <laughs> Therefore, I mean, he was the greatest philosopher. Like, that's actually a great argument, in my opinion. I love it. Right? I mean, I would love to uh, honestly have an episode going over Mariology. Because that's another one. And also, like, Christology. Christology. Mm. Like, that's just, like... Sometimes it just... Just trying to remember all the different aspects of Christology, Christology just kind of like goes over my head. There's like, so oh, many I need ways. to remember that it's one divine person with two with with two with a divine and a, a fully divine and a fully human nature. The hypostatic but, union. Yeah. Does it have? Does he have? Did he have like one divine will, or did he also have a human will? So I've actually not the answer that but i've been doing some research into christology because I, I had a very weird question asked to me on twitter and it was was jesus christ a boobs or an ass man <laughs> um and i didn't want to just dismiss it out of hand i, I generally like okay let me think about this one for a while and here's the conclusion i came to looking into some saint aquinas stuff christ entered it so to enter and become human and be tempted by all the same things we are tempted by, so we can conquer those temptations and inspire us to conquer temptations as well. So therefore, Christ was both boobs and ass, because man is both boobs and ass, but he did not fall into concupiscence because he did not have a stain of original sin. Man, people are going to come to these episodes, like, hoping, oh, I'm going to get a nice history of philosophy, to which we answer the very <laughs> the very philosophical questions. Was, was, was the Lord, was the Messiah a boobs or ass? Prefer? Well, honestly, it's a weird question, but it actually does hit to a deep sea, a lot of question, like, how was Christ tempted if he was fully God? Does that mean God can be tempted? And so it actually, why is a dumb question? It does help illuminate a very interesting and hard-to-answer question about Christ's uh, fully God, fully man, cupcupacents, and temptation. Someday I'll write like a masterful philosophical treatise, and then and this will be this will be a question. I'll word it a lot nicer. But... Yes. Anyways, uh, well, let's let's start. The first one we're gonna go. So I think how we do is we'll say the chapter name and then the dates the guy was alive for, and then we're gonna start the reading. Okay. Do you want to start or should I? No, I'll go first. Then you can kick on right. the next one. Awesome. Chapter one. Solomon, 1011 to 931 BC. Okay. Solomon, David's son, Israel's second king, was reputed to be the wisest man in the world. 1 Kings 3.12. Even today, the wisdom of Solomon is a platitude of profound praise. Ancient Jewish tradition credits Solomon with the writing of three books in the, he in he in the Hebrew Bible. The idealistic love lyrics of the Song of Solomon is use, the practical problems of Middle Ages, in Middle Ages, and the world-weary and cynical Ecclesiastes in Old Ages. So my Bible is Sirach. And so, unless that's two different books, my Bible doesn't have Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Um, most biblical scholars believe the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes were both written long after Solomon's death. The authors used his name instead of their own, instead of their own out of respect for them, respect for their, sorry, respect for their revered teacher and archetype. As if I would write this book under the pseudonym of Socrates. But we will explore the philosophy of Solomon through Ecclesiastes, since Ecclesiastes is truly a work of philosophy and contains arguments by Proverbs, is just Proverbs, and Sol Solomon is just songs. Parentheses, I should not have said just, both Proverbs and songs are of great value. No society can be wise and happy without them. 
I got I love the way Creep writes. He you know, very normal, very stylized, very you know proper authorship and the you know philosophy. Parentheses, very personable old man wisdom thrown at the very end. You know, yeah, he's he's very enjoyable just throwing his little ad libs in there for you to just like j- digest and make it. It makes it seem a lot more human and like you're actually being spoken to, like it's a dialogue. He is he is a fantastic author. I I don't, I don't think there's a single Creep book I can't. I don't recommend to people. These are all great. Oh, yeah. The Argument of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book of one big idea. Start at the beginning, at the end, and every verse in the book is part of the argument for this one idea. The big idea is the author's answer to the most obvious and obviously important philosophical question of all. What is the meaning and purpose of life? And his answer is nothing. He is a nihilist, nothingist. All is vanity. All attempts at finding the meaning and purpose of human life are in vain. The word translated vanity means literally chasing after the wind. The essential argument of this whole book can be summarized in a single syllogism. All toil is under the sun. All that is under the sun is vanity. Therefore, all toil is vanity. By toil, he means attempts at meaning, ways of living, lifestyles. By under the sun, he means in the world as it appears to everyone's ordinary observation. By vanity, he means having no ultimate purpose, point, or fulfillment. Among the ways of life or lifestyles tested by the Solomonic also are the pursuits of wisdom, Ecclesiastes 11. I'm not going to read all the sites here. Uh, pleasure, riches, fame, and honor, and religious piety. Among the reasons why all that under the sun is vanity are the fact that all it all ends in death, nature's indifference to justice, God's silence and unknowability, the problem of evil, and the cyclical nature of time which thwarts progress and hope. On cyclical nature of time, I want to point out there's actually a big debate among uh, modern historians. Whether um, specifically, I think I saw I saw this debate started with an academic agent when he was writing his book on the prophets of doom on cyclical history. He wanted to include a Christian, but he said Christians have to fall into rigged theory of history because they believe Christ is coming, therefore it's going to get better. What I think he's ignoring the third option, which is predestined history, which is uh, God is in control with more of a token view of history, but that's just a side note on the philosophy of history, which is a, a widely underrated topic in, in philosophy. Okay. Interesting. Uh, if anyone wants a great book on it, I believe Maui Tan has a Maui Tan has a book on his history of philosophy. No, philosophy of history. Um, it's I've read some of it online, it's it's very good. <laughs> Why such a disparaging book, sorry, the pressing book in the Bible is a question for theologians rather than the philosophers, but it's probably part of the rabbinic confrontational teaching method in ancient Judaism, which is in one way surprisingly similar to the Socratic method that Socrates would make famous later in Greece, teaching by dialectic or dialogue or debate. By question and answer, classic question. Why does a rabbi always answer a question with another question? Why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with another question? <laughs> There's a great bit in Family Guy where Stewie finds out he's going to die, and so he goes to all different religions trying to figure out which one gives him the best heaven. He starts talking to a Jewish guy, and he goes, uh, what happens when we die? What do you think happens when we die? I don't, I'm asking you, and I'm asking you. I want to know what you think. I want to know what you think. You know what I think? I think your entire religion is made up so you can get more days off from work. Oh, gotta go. It's Slamadongadong, and he just runs out the door. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, it's a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic family guy bit. That is it's, a good bit. It's apparently back in the day, um, 
I was reading a, a book a while ago on like a guy's experience going through boot camp. Um, and if you had one Zeus guy in like the platoon, they would all pretend to be Zeus. Again, he would just Zeus go and make up some holiday for him to get off, get off. And the boot, the boon sucks would just go, okay, I guess that's a Zeus holiday. And everyone's now Zeus for some reason. And so they just give him that day off. <laughs> the whole religion, the whole of religious Judaism is put into debate in this book. They also implicitly ask if the Jewish religion is the answer. What is the question? An answer is only has important has the question and answers. Ecclesiastes gets the question out. Isn't life really meaningless? Has it seems to be a reason? Has it seems to be to reason and observation? What is the ultimate meaning? Its highest good, if it has one. Only at the very end does this book give the answer. The end of a matter. All have been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Prize is written by a second author in an answer to the first one. <laughs> I love that Saturday of writing a book and then asking all these questions and not actually answering any of them. And then somebody and else like, comes along inspired by the divine by, by, by the divine word and it's just like, oh. Just to listen to God. I'm going to write a book at the very end of this book. And the answer to all these questions will be figured out by some guy two generations from now. Because I don't want you guys. I want you guys to sing. I want you guys to sing about this for two generations. And that's all in the book. For some reason, that reminds me of one of my favorite memes since becoming like a, a Catholic and everything. Well, not proper. I'm, I'm still, still going to get baptized and everything. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's like I, I see this meme where it's, you know, the guy writing, writing on the page with the pen that's on fire. And it's like John finishing the Bible with the word. Amen. Amen. Oh, that is the dude. John is John is gotta be my favorite apostle. So many cool moments with John. Um, and in the Bible, it's Amen. It's like the most, it's the hardest thing anyone's ever done in history. Right? I mean, it's like the coldest thing ever. Since reading the Lamb Supper, I've really appreciated Revelations and what oh, I've the read. Lamb from Supper is so good. It's that's, great. That's, that's Scott Hahn's one of the like Peter Creed is the philosophy with Scott Hahn is the theology. Mm-hmm. Both fantastic, wise old men. Who, when you read the books, it feels like this is, this is a. There's a there are philosophy, there are books, philosophy books, or theology books you read where it's very technical. Like, yeah, this guy was is clearly a smart person. Scott Hahn and Peter Cooper had the books where you read them. Like, yeah, these people are definitely wise. Like, if I had a question, I would ask one of these people. Yeah, and I'm I was I listened to like a a Pines with Aquinas interview with with Scott Hahn, and he's just talking mm-hmm. about how Christ doing things in the in the human world right how it makes them divine and everything and he's like going into things and i'm just thinking whoa i never <laughs> could have thought like this sanctifies human nature every act so he sanctified working sanctified everything which is just incredible to think about i know it's amazing anyway he's so good um yeah Last thing on Scott Hahn, if you ever get a chance, there's a video he did. Him, Pines with Aquinas, on Pines with Aquinas, it was him, Matt Fratt, and Cameron Batuzzi. I watched that. I love how Cameron has up his laptop and there's like, you know, all this stuff and notes, everything doing like a. He's doing uh, like his little math program. system to figure out the papacy <laughs> question. And Scott Hahn just has a Bible in front of him and just from memory, just reading off and quoting scriptures. I'm like, that's a, that's a Chad move right there. <laughs> Someday I'll be as cool as Scott Hahn. Yeah, he has like eight kids, and like I think five of them became priests. Yeah, that's this is wild. Scott Hahn is is single handedly lifting up the replacement rate. He also, 
sings about Rome every single day. Someone asked him, like one of the Catholic answer TikTok guys asked him, Mister Mr. Scott Hahn, do you sing about Rome every day? He goes, yeah, I sing about the Roman Empire every day, obviously. So he's clearly one of us. Yeah, I think about the Roman Empire every day, mostly because I, I, I basically decided that St. Ignatius of Antioch is my patron saint. I'm always thinking, oh, he was he suffered and was martyred in Rome. Mm-hmm. Rome was and, I, I, the more I read Rome, the more I, I'm actually getting nerdy about the Byzantine Empire and in Constantinople, like the late Roman Empire. Just okay. um, there was there was a um, little tangent again. I think it was the second, the third, the last emperor of the Byzantine Empire, um, Emmanuel. Sorry, Emmanuel. Um, became a ward of a uh, Turk of, of a Turk because the Turkish army was just so big. It's like a hostage situation where the like, king sent his son over there, like, "Hey, you have my son. We want to attack you guys if you do this over here," kind of thing. And every day they tried to convert him, and he had this Bengal quote where it said, "Um, show me what is new in the Quran, and I will show you what is evil and lies." <laughs> um, something along those lines about this, about this being a, it all being a heresy. Um, just fantastic. But back okay. to this. There's so many tangents to go off of. Okay, so back at only at the yeah. very end. Yes. Where are they at? Uh, meaningless or vanity is unbearable and unlivable. Victor Frankl, in Man's Search for Meaning, philosophizing about the Jewish experience in Nazi concentration camps, noted that many weak prisoners survived if they only found a meaning to their suffering. But many strong ones died because they didn't. Quoting Nietzsche, he observed that a man can do almost anyhow if only he has a why. This is a hopeful, but this is hopeful, but we still have to answer Ecclesiastes, which gives good reasons for meaninglessness. Read the book yourself, but if you find these reasons everywhere in life, evil, death, pain, injustice, ignorance, folly, failure, even time itself, if all human life under the sun and the world we see, and if everything under the sun is vanity, because all the reasons logic follows that all human life is vanity. Any argument must pass three checkpoints to prove its conclusion, and thus there are only three ways to answer any argument. If you are to justify this agreement with this conclusion, you must find one, a term uh, used ambiguously, two, a false premise, or three, a logical fallacy. So the conclusion does not logically follow from the premise, even the premises are all true. Can you answer Solomon's argument in any one of the three ways? Lay a soap read sounds by the rab- by this rabbi. See if you can hold your own with the devil's ad- with this devil's advocate. If you can't, well, then perhaps you should read the other philosophers in this book to get some help. <laughs> okay, and then the selected biography is Three Philosophies of Life by Peter Kraft. Well, I, I, don't, I haven't read that one yet, but I put it's good. Yeah, so I mean, Solomon, it sounds like Solomon and Ecclesiastes is essentially a nihilist. He's saying everything is meaningless. And except at the very end, he finally basically is like divine revelation at the end of the matter. All that is all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Because really, you know, like you you hear that like cliche phrase, right? Like, you know, we're not made for this world. We're made for another that we're made to experience the fullness of God's love. And so everything we do here should be an anticipation of following God's word and his, and, and his commandments. So then that way we can get to the final fulfillment of everything where things aren't meaningless and void and vanity, where we get to experience the fullness of that embrace of God. To summarize, was a St. Augustine quote, our hearts are restless, we rest in you, Lord. Exactly. Um, 
Yeah, I think St. Augustine is that like probably the greatest philosopher to answer any of the questions raised in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, because his view of church lifting your heart up to heaven, his view of what heart of West West New Lord. I think he just um, his his problem where he did where he deals with the problem of evil, um, which I think he actually dealt with the artist the problem of evil better than any philosopher in history. Um, he uses it as a proof for God, uh, which is incredible. Um, and he, I think when we get to him, he'll be a really fun one to and, and read, read. But let's go ahead and get to the next chapter. You want to read the next one? Yeah. Uh, Zoroaster. This is one I, I only learned about from this book the first time. Circa 600 BC. Do you want to give a quick like historical overview of – see, I, I haven't read this chapter yet. Does he, does he go into what Zoroastrianism is or he's focused on the figure? Yes, he goes into kind of what Zoroastrianism is. So we'll kind okay. of get to it. And then I'm okay, honestly good. like, I might not be the most equipped to give a historical thing. So if we, afterwards, if it doesn't go as far as you would like, you can obviously offer commentary. Sounds but, good. All right. Zoroaster, a Greek version of the ancient Iranian name Zarathustra, okay, uh, lived in eastern Iran, probably during the 6th century BC, though legends place him as early as 3000 BC. He founded he founded the religion slash philosophy of Zoroastrianism, which was once very widespread in Persia, but was radically reduced by Islam. There are now about 250 million Zoroastrians left, most of them in Persis or per Parsis in India. Little is known about Zoroaster himself. He is said to have written many sacred scriptures, nearly all of which are lost, even though the Zend Avesta partially survives. He claims to be a prophet. He claimed to be a prophet inspired by the one true God. He was rejected in his wife's hometown, had great opposition spreading his teaching, and was murdered at an altar. Prophets now know that religion is a non-profit organization. Uh, Greek, <laughs> Roman, and medieval legends mistakenly ascribe to him the invention of astrology and magic. Pliny says Zoroaster miraculously laughed on the day of his birth and that his head pulsated so powerfully that it repelled your hand if you touched it. <laughs> and then in, then in, in parentheses, the FDA would have mandated a warning label, danger, philosophical wisdom inside. <laughs> Nietzsche, the author of Beyond Good and Evil and the Enemy of Religion and Morality, entitled his masterpiece, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Zarathustra. Sorry, Zarathustra. Zarathustra? Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to pronounce it like that. I'm just going to keep saying Zoroaster. <laughs> to satirize Zoroaster's moral and religious dualism, i.e. his idea of the world as a battleground between good and evil. When Muslims conquered Persia, they came to the conclusion that Zoroaster was a true prophet of the one true God, like Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. The four dualisms. Zoroastrianism, Manichaeism, Taoism, and Hinduism are all forms of good-evil dualism, but they are all different. Manichaeism, founded by Mani, A.D. 226 to 276, also labeled Zoroaster a prophet, along with Jesus and Buddha. But Manichaeism changed Zoroaster's doctrine from monotheism to a two-god dualism, denied that God created the material world, and declared all matter evil, so kind of Gnosticism. Yeah. <laughs> Augustine flirted with Manichaeism for a decade before he rejected it as irrational and immoral. Zoroastrianism is also distinguished from Taoism, which will be covered in chapter six, concerning good and evil. Taoism claims the manifestation of Tao, manifestations of Tao or the way of ultimate reality always involves two opposite sides, yin and yang, dark and light, death and life, like the force and Star Wars. 
ancient Buddhism, Hinduism also teaches that the supreme reality, Brahman, manifests himself or itself equally as Vishnu, the creator, and Shiva, the destroyer. When the Brahman sleeps, he becomes Vishnu and dreams a world into being. When he wakes, he becomes Shiva and destroys the world. The basic tenets. In contrast to all these, most of the basic tenets of Zoroastrianism are strikingly similar to those of the three major Abrahamic religions. One, there is one omniscient and omnipotent god, the Ahur Mazda, who is truth or light and a perfect moral goodness. Evil does not originate with him. Two, God created invisible or spiritual worlds and then the visible material world. Three, the invisible world contains a hierarchy of spirits to rule the creation and to guard mankind. These are called gods, so Zoroastrianism is often labeled a polytheism, but these are more like angels made by God to do his work. Four, from primeval man came the first man and woman from whom all men are descended. Five, human beings are created good. They shared God's spiritual nature. Six, evil has infiltrated the material world, but matter is not evil. The origin of evil is Ahriman, an evil spirit. Seven, we have free choice. Life is essentially a battlefield between good and evil. Eight, there is life after death when spirits, which are immortal, leave bodies. Nine, God judges all choices justly after death, rewarding the good with an eternal heaven and punishing the evil with an eternal hell. Heaven is joy, which comes from the light of God. Hell is darkness, misery, and punishment from evil spirits. There's also a purgatorial waiting period between death and the last judgment, where we receive a vision of every thought, word, and deed we chose during life. 10. Zoroaster is the only one prophet among others. The last... Shoshanite or Saoshanite, a messianic savior figure, will usher in the day of judgment and the final destruction of all evil. 11. Earth and air, and most especially fire and water, are sacred and must be kept pure. Zoroastrians pray in the presence of fire and in fire temples. 12. Contact with impure matter, especially dead bodies, is forbidden. Corpses are ritually exposed to vultures on towers of silence. This practice is usually omitted today because because the nearly extinct vulture population is simply not up to the job. And then 13, (laughs) the three basic moral obligations are to have good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. 14, like Muslims, Zoroastrians pray five times a day. And then 15, ritual purifications, chants, and sacrifices are offered by priests to purify the world and mankind. These are numerous dif- there are numerous differences between the teaching of Zoroaster and those of Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad in particulars and in practice, but the sim- similarities are quite striking. Accounting for them is a very interesting philosophical question. So, yeah. I want to say a quick thing about dualism. Um, well, two things. One, one historical kind of Zoroastrianism, they also believe that the uh, king was the embodiment of their god, uh, based on like the Egyptians. Uh, and however, when they were conquered by Alexander and he killed the king, it kind of killed the religion because it's like, well, God's dead, so I guess it's not true. <laughs> kind of killed it. Um, and I want to say, the thing I want to say about dualism the dualism is kind of, how do I put this? It's so this, this, I think we would be, be both cause of Thomas, I believe, correct? So, uh, would I call myself a Thomist? Yeah. 
Um, I wouldn't say so because I'm not quite sure what it all entails, and I have to do a lot more okay. reading of the Thomas themselves. I want to. I don't want to claim a label that I have no understanding of. Got it. Got it. Um, okay. Well, I'll say the Thomas. One of the things about Thomism is that it is kind of the philosophy of common sense. Like, if common sense was a more perfected intellect that drawn upon what you observe in reality, deduced to its most pure metaphysical terms, um, dualism does seem common sense almost, uh, not common sense in what we observe, but in how we account for the world around us. Is that there's good, then there's bad. So, there must be a pure good, there must be a pure bad. Um, we see this now in Star Wars, we see this even in some like, um, in Star Wars, it's dark light side, dark side. Um, it's in a lot of different things, you know, yin yang. No, not really yin yang. That's a different one. But, um, and it seems it's even dualism affected a lot of things, especially some branches of modern Protestantism, which hold that the spirit is good, but the the flesh is weak. The body is what's evil. Um, they don't take it as far as some of the Gnostic or secret secret uh, cults of Rome. Um, but there is a interesting like dualism never seems to go away. That we always seem to have an idea of evil. Um, I think when we more naturally, if you actually pay attention to what, what we call evil, it's all just a privation of good. Evil does not have existence itself per se. It is just a privation of what is good. Um, so it's it's all evil things that come about if you, if you accept any kind of dualist philosophy. Um, but it never seems to really die. It's a, it's a very it's you know oldest religion in the world with dualists. Um, but it's. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot to say about it. That's interesting. I think it's um, sociologically speaking, more less less philosophical. Philosophically, it's kind of boring, but sociologically speaking, it's more of an interesting topic. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I don't mean I don't have a whole lot. I mean, a lot of that sound. It, a lot of it sounds very interesting to say the least. And then, like, you know, there's like the Vatican II teaching that there's kind of little kernels of truth um, behind like most religions, right? Mm -hmm. That they all. They, that they lack the fullness of divine revelation, and I wouldn't doubt that there's something to that here with Zoroastrianism, mm -hmm. and to which I would always say, well, the the devil doesn't exact – the devil, like, manipulates truth, right? That yeah. there's always going to be a little bit of truth behind it to deviate you from where yeah. you're going. I, I like to think of that C.S. Lewis quote we read last podcast about um, Aslan talking to that um, – Kamoan soldier who was worshiping Tass his whole life. Like, you could not do it unless it was, you could not do it your whole life unless it was a truth in it. You know, you couldn't, like, if a religion was all falsehood, all lies, and there was no truth at all, it wouldn't make sense. No, eventually people would snap out of it and realize this is, this is bullshit. And so it's a, it's a kernel of the truth that I'll recognize in every single religion has a kernel of truth, but also this kernel of the truth that are not fulfilled truths that cause that cause it to be the most dangerous because it's hard to convince someone to abandon because they, they people are super sync holistically, you know. Like when I was being talked out of Protestantism to Catholicism, there was a like a maybe a split week split week like, well I guess I can't know anything really, you know. And so if you're being brought out of a uh, religion that has a kernel of truth to a fullness of truth, it's always going to be that uh, desire to say, well I can't know anything go for a nihilist. Um, this is why I think I, I, I like the Vatican II teaching on that, obviously. But I think it has to be yeah, the Vatican Church, Vatican covered it well when they wrote about it, but it's been adopted, I think, in really weird ways nowadays. Where it's like, oh, well, every it's, it's, it's been boiled down to like a religious relativism. It's like, well, every religion has some truth in it, so we can all just be friends. And it's like, no, it's like, no, no. obviously not, obviously not. Like, yes, Islam believes in God, but they deny the Trinity. 
They believe in Jesus, deny he was son of God. They believe in Mary, deny he was sinless. So, like, know, have, so like, having a hint of truth in what you say won't save you from f- the fullness of separation from God. Unless you had a chance to never hear the truth, which is another point in the Vatican II soteriology. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's that's actually one thing I need to do. I want I need to get Grant on something to do a claim, reclaiming Vatican II book. Yeah, I mean, I know um I know there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff on that. I mean, yeah. I'm always I, I mean, I've I haven't heard anything that I would massively disagree with from Vatican II at all, nor that I could realistically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's nothing, but there's I, nothing in there that I can disagree with. I think it's all true. Um, I think the implementation of it was done um, by people who didn't fully understand it, or cherry pick what they liked out of it and then ran with it. Yeah, um, there was a Vatican II was good. The implementation. I think it's sort of been stricter on the people who are implementing it because they kind of let it, it went. The people went. People went. People suck. People go astray. Um, the church did everything it could, but it sort of went farther into direct supervision. Yeah. Um, All right. Chapter three. I'm not super excited about this one. We're reading a pod's eat. Do you want me to um, read it? No, no. I, I got. It, I got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I might have some more. I'll, say my, I'll try to say my commentary for the end because I have some interesting commentary on Hinduism as a whole. Okay. Chapter 3, Sakana, 788 AD to 80, 820 AD. Although Sakana lived long after the anonymous sages who wrote the Hindu holy books that he learned from and commented on, the Vedas and the up, uh, Upsans, I can never know how to pronounce the Hindu words. Um, he is the clearest. He is the clearest, profoundest, most philosophical, and most influential teacher of their wisdom. So we classify him as one of the ancient sages. It is said that the god Siva appeared in a dream to Sakana's father, who was a wits but wits but sireless, Brahmin, asking him to choose between a wise and virtuous but short-lived or an ordinary and long-lived one. He replied wisely by saying, do whatever was best for humanity. His son, named Sakanan, or bestower of happiness, became the greatest of all Hindu sinkers, but died at age 72. His father died when Sakanan was three. Remarkably, few philosophers have fathers who survived their son's adolescence. Is there a connection? I actually do want to comment on that. That is an interesting thing, you know? Um, most philosophers' dads don't live to see them be philosophers. Um, I, 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 if I had to guess why... When you have traditionally, when you need wisdom, you go to your father because he lived your life, lived basically lived your life longer, you know, because you don't have to work the same job, work in the same city or same town. And if you didn't have a father to go to for wisdom, you had to kind of seek out your own wisdom or discover your own wisdom, which then led to your philosophy. If I, if I had to account for it, that's how I would account for it. Hey, I, 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 don't, I don't see any problem with that analysis. Sakana became a sage only when his mother's permission was, ele- was elected through a crocodile. When the animal grabbed the boy's leg as he was bathing in the river and began to pull him deep into the water, he sighed to his mother on the riverbanks, giving permission to leave home and become a sanasi, wondering ascetic sage, or else I was to die with unfulfilled desire and not leave this world in peace. So he gave him permission and immediately some fishermen netted the crocodile and saved Sakana. His wonders led him to a cave of a guru. Go Zivan G Zivan Pada. 
Gavin De I fucking hate Hinduism. <laughs> this name is I hate the Indian language. I no, I'm not gonna get into this. Who asked him the key question? Who are you? He answered, I am neither earth, water, fire, air, or sky. I am not the sense organs nor the mind. I am the supreme consciousness underlying all. Once Sakana asks an untouchable Siladla, keeping um keeper of si Cream, cremation grounds to get out of his way, the outcast answered to him, answered, to whom were you words addressed, O learned sir, to the body which comes from the same source and performs the same functions for both Brahman and, out, and an outcast, or to the soul, Atman, which is also the same in all. How do such differences, as this is, is a Brahman, this is an out, this is an outcast arise in Outcasts arise in avita, non-dualistic, mon monastic, pantheistic world, which is the philosophy you preach. The sun saints, at least, it, the sun saints in the least, if it reflects the Lateran of the Holy River Ganges, Sakana immediately fell at the outcast's feet, recognizing as the god Siva in disguise. Well, I would hope so, because that's that's a lot for just a random cremation guy. Just like, just like, like honestly. Have you ever, you know, when you hear those things on Twitter where it's like, my child, where it's like, my, my child was upset and cried. And I was like, how will we care about the socioeconomic status of the whatever community or something? Like, right, you know, all those things. You're like, yeah, your kid never said that. Like, that's what I'm, the vibes I'm getting from all these stories. Like, what kid is actually saying? What kid is saying that when he gets bitten by an alligator? I want to agree if only because I can't stand Hinduism and I want to say it's all bullshit. But I'm going to accept that every every once in a while a random genius kid does show up. And as we will see later in this chapter, Sakana, despite being Hindu, was a genius in many ways, and I hate him for it. <laughs> um because I mean he rationally he rationally arrived at the Trinity through reason alone that Brahmin had to be three parts. Um I would say that was I have a lot of comments on Hinduism at the end that I will make, and I'm going to, they're very, they're all over the place. I haven't come to a conclusion on my on my thoughts of Hinduism yet, but we'll continue. Okay. Sakana wrote three commentaries on the Brahmin Strauss and the Upsans, and on the Brigade Gita. Almost all Hindu philosophers commentated on the first, which consists of 522 obscurely tossed aphorisms, various interpretations of what had produced various opposing schools of Hindu philosophy. Sakana united all these strands by showing that his Avada interpretation alone could account for all the truths and all the truths that spiritually uniting India. In this, he was kind of a Hindu St. Thomas Aquinas. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Kubasa said the same thing, and I, I had I almost flew to Alaska to fight him. <laughs> he kicked my ass, but I, I'd go down swinging. During his travels, he recognized the house of a philosopher by the fact that the gate where the parents encases arguing abstract philosophical questions. <laughs> this is how students recognize the philosophy department at the university. <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna lie. This is a great story. <laughs> Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it was all nonsense, but this is like, this is just hilarious. There is something about Hindu stories. Well, when they Gerard pointed this out, when it's commentators of, of uh, Hinduism, um, their stories are, they are incredible storytellers. 
whether unknowingly or accidentally will hit the deepest truths of human meaning and sacrifice or have incredible stories. Um, and that's why Bollywood films are so great. It really is, though. Bollywood movies are awesome. This is my I hate to admit it. I, um, I really like Slumdog Millionaire. That's one of my favorite movies. That's just the fun. I think that's, that's something Hollywood has lost is being fun. And I hate that the whimsy in movies now comes from the brown people. And now I hate all brown people. Just the Hindu ones. <laughs> my, I, have, I have a lot of I have, I have a lot of Indians in my uh, Paris. Believe it or not, like I think is all every Indian in my town goes to my Paris. Um, okay. and so I they're great people once they convert, but until then, Sarkana walked to all parts of India, defeating all the great philosophers in debate. He resolved all questions except those about erotic love posed by a woman. As an interesting thing, the same thing with Socrates in the symposium. Like they can they talk about love for the entire book, and at the very end, Socrates says he got all he about love from a woman, and it kind of boils down to I don't know anything about love. <laughs> <laughs> and it is weird how like when whenever it comes to love, it, the conversation always ends with a woman being the solution or the cause for silence. And I, I don't I don't quite know how to account for that. Besides that, women feel love in a deeper level because they're all borderline sociopaths, which is a good thing. I would defend that, that women are sociopaths, but that's a good that we want them to be. We want them to have the strictest in-group, out-group preference for family. Um, this is why women in HR departments are evil. Um, there's a whole tangent I could go on about that, but I'll try to save it. Okay. <laughs> um, where's he at? Until he entered the body. Um... Until he entered the body of a dead king and vicariously traversed the perfumed gardens of the Kama Sutra, the Hindu ritual religious erotic love manual, by miraculous yogic powers, demonic influence. I will point out that this is my common objection to Hinduism and Indians in general. I'll say, what is the one thing Indians produced that actually had an effect on the rest of the culture? And people were saying for a few minutes ago, oh, the Kama Sutra. I'm like, yeah, what is it? 18 pages of sin, bobs, and vagine all misspelled. Um, Sakunar is a classic Hindu philosopher. Hinduism is an extremely subtle and sophisticated system of yogas or spiritual disciplines, a kind of interior technology or spiritual athleticism based on the 4,000 years of experience. The advantage of our radically slow and inadequate treatment of the system while it's no longer one is that it cannot one that is that it cannot even pretend to completeness, summarizing 4,000 years in one page for Seuss. I don't even know what that last part meant, but okay. Brahman. The up and upsides of the, the Upanishads. Uh, Upanishads are the most philosophical of Hindu scriptures. They are predicated by the Vedas, which are the most mystical and poetical, and followed by the Bhagavad Gita, which is the most practical and personal. Um, if anyone wants to read a good thing about the Vedas, uh, Breakthrough and sacri break Sacrifice, Breakthrough and Mimetic series by Wanae Gerard is a very good book covering a few of the Veda stories and the truth in them about uh, Mimetic series and sacrifice. Uh, the basic insights of the up and sides, the idea of uh, the idea of the center of soccer on philosophy is the reality is absolutely single. All things, the appearance of one, are appearances of one reality, which is perfect, eternal, mental, and spiritual. The up Upanishads called Brahman the Great One. 
it may be personified as a divine person or seen as an impersonal force or entity, but it is really neither a he or she nor an it. It is niti. Niti, not this, not that, is infinite, formless, and indefinable because the central concept of the up and sides is so foreign to most Westerns, it may as well be may as, it may be well to compromise a bit and approach it beginning with a more familiar Western concept. Then altering it, take the concept of God, Western religions, then subtract personality, will, and miraculous action. This is a create, create mm, creation of the universe of real matter. Now you have something like Brahman, an impersonal, eternal, divine mind. Some everything is a dream of that mind, an earlier, cruder version of this monism. Everything was part of that body. Everything is in the mind. As everything really is the mind. It is not other than that mind. And as your ideas are not other than as your ideas are not other than your mind. Just all is one. The Upanishad, Upanishads say that one is the word for truth, two is the word for air. Brahman transcends all dualities. The I Tao, person to person duality, we are all one self, Atman. The I It, person versus sing duality, Brahman is neither person nor sing. The one sing versus another sing duality, Brahman is not a particular finite sing. The God word duality, there is no creator creation distinction. The word is not other than Brahman. Even the God yourself duality, taught prism asi, thou art that. The metaphysics have has life-changing practical consequences. We discover our own identity with Brahman, our identity as Brahman, when we discover the depths of our souls as Atman. The single self that we are ultimately all parts of, all appearances of, or mask for, and which is really divine. I think a lot of the, uh, everyone is a, everyone's a piece of Brahman influence uh, Gandhi's pacifism. Um, it's really... I'm not going to go into Gandhi Wayne. Honestly, for some reason, this is making me think of Kant for whatever reason. I know we'll eventually get to Kant, but like everything being just an impersonal, like just being an aspect of the mind conjures to mind, like the idea of Kant's like epistemology, right? Mm-hmm. That everything we know of the world is the formation of our own, sub- of our minds, essentially, that we cannot know an objective, like, we can't know a metaphysical truth because we all have our own intersubjectivity. But like for some yeah. reason, this is reminding me of that for whatever reason. It's a the, it's definitely an interesting school of thought when it comes to the idea that nothing is real per se. Everything is to say the dream of Brahman. Um, what is funny enough, there is a I can't remember his name, but there is a um, quantum. Uh, quantum physicist guy who is a uh, Hindu and he says um, no basically atoms is so much empty space there's nothing there we're just imagining the atoms are there because nothing is really there and Brahman is just playing tricks on us that's kind of his conclusion <laughs> um, it's like, uh, I will say um, we're, we're going to end up covering idealism to Kant to Descartes to a lot of the other thinkers um, and what sucks is the, the argument, I think the best argument against him is the critical realist argument from Zach Maritain. But he's the very last philosopher in the series, so we will have to hear all that nonsense before we can get to the guy who I think debunks it. <laughs> so we'll have to just wait to the end for that. But where we at? This, uh, the central, central affirmation. affirmation. Yeah, the central affirmation of the Apanards is Tat Chazam Asi. Zo, Atman, Art That, Brahman. So, contemplative meditation, Janga, Jana Yoga, 
you find that the depth of yourself, you are Atman, the single universal self or soul of what's the ego, Ziva, is a mirror appearance of all localization. Like sunset reflected in a tiny broken piece of a mirror, this is Atman, and this Atman is Brahman, the one divine mind in what's all things and persons are ultimately only its thoughts. You discover your supreme identity only when you lose your separate identity. It is a syllogism. You are Atman, and Atman is Brahman. Therefore, you are Brahman. And how to explain the fact that I don't seem to be Brahman? How to explain that the appearance of manyness and separation by contrasting ordinary consciousness, which is deceptive with mystical consciousness, which is enlightening, Ordinary consciousness is like standing in one of many offshore islands, seeing distinctions between your personal island and others, and between all islands and the mainland God, the mystical consciousness is like the ocean diver's view of all islands. Has they are pub hmm. has mere pro do you know that word? Protuberances. Protuberances of a single undersea continent, which is also one of the mainland which is also one with the mainland because it's all on single earth. Hinduism provides us with a diving suit. Oneness and manyness. The basic question that arises from the absolute monism, oneism, is the problem of the one and the many. If ultimate reality is one, is manyness real or unreal? And if it is merely an unreal appearance, how and why did the appearance arise? Sarkhanov's answer is simple. Absolute oneness logically entails also an absolute oneness between oneness and manyness. Oneness eats or simulates manyness. There is no duality whatsoever. Manyness seems to be other than it is in contrast with oneness, but no otherness or contrast can be really real, even the contrast between the oneness and the manyness or between reality and appearance. There is only Brahman and the one without a second. This is very different from Jewish Christian Muslim theology, in which God is one with a second one with a second by creating a world distinct from himself. And in Christian theology, God is a trinity of persons, just as also manyness as well as oneness in himself. Though Hinduism, Hindu theology is strictly different Western in being pantheistic and monotheistic versus creationist and theistic, I use a sub creator creator distinction. The two moralities and practical psychologies are strikingly similar, especially when it comes to the question of man's true supreme good or sulum bonum, and the basic false alternative to it. On the base of, basis of thousands of years of inner athleticism, India has discovered four layers to the psyche and four fundamental wants of man, namely pleasure, power, altruism, and mystical enlightenment. Ayn Rand debunked. <laughs> um, or consciousness union with Brahman in three attributes of Sat, Chi, and Ananda. These stages correspond quite nicely to the Kierkegaard stages, of, stages on life's way. See Volume 4, Chapter 73. Progress in religion consists, consists largely of dealing with these layers, one by one, getting these sour temptations out of one system and discovering the deepest one underneath. This is our sensible purpose of each questionable invention has the Kama Sutra and the caste system. Brahman is called... Sn- Satsamada or Sat, infinite reality, Chit, infinite coziness, uh, consciousness, infinite in understanding, and Amanda, infinite bliss. This is realized by the mystical experience of Motati or Moski, liberation release, which releases us from finitude 
into a snake-setting skin, revealing the beyond was in. The Satsumata, um that always was in us, or rather, we are always in it because it is everything, or rather everything is in it and has a sort in a mind. We do not really change from having Marky to having it, only from dreaming that we don't have it to waking up and realizing that we always had it. Time itself and things are not real, but illusion. Maya, dream. The dream of what we call the world is really a nightmare for time consciousness, which is the mode of consciousness of this dream, and the sources of our desire for the future, and therefore also of our pain, the future deprived person. You probably need to read this sentence twice to get it. I want to speak real quick about that last little bit. Um, is uh, a source of all desire for the future, therefore also all the pain and the future deprived the present. Um, and then put it in modern Western terms, um, life is a video, because that's what we mean incarnation. Life is a video game. Why are you spending all your time leveling up when you're just going to have to die and do it again? Um, and they really do kind of create a, like a nothingness idea, like, you know, to become one with Brahman is to be nothing because nothing is real. Um, and I, I find that absolutely evil. And I think that's also a cause for one to, that's also why I think Hinduism, Hindu people don't care that there's shit all over the floor and they're destroy toilets and cook disgusting food and awful because really nothing matters to me because nothing is real. Like it, 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 it sounds nicer than it is, but it's really, it's really more of a nihilistic idea because it's like nothing is weird, therefore nothing matters. And that's how you achieve enlightenment by accepting that nothing matters. This is why I think all the truths that are found in Hinduism are, pri- um, are were later privated to all these evils that we see come out of Hinduism, which aren't more evils per se, because they're not, um, well, they are more evils, but they're not extrinsic evils, they're internal evils of one's own soul and the privation of one's nature as man. Okay, fair enough. But. Rum. Azu's idea of manyness. A later, more popular thinker, Ramadun, Ramadza, Ram, Ramudza, Ram, Ramanuja, Ramanuja, Ramanuja. Ramanuja shows the opposite answer to the question of the one in manyness that manyness is real, especially personal manyness, and that the height of mystical enlightenment is not the perception that unreality of the of the unreality of the many, but of the union or unification of two really distinct persons, the human self and Brahman. I don't want to be sugar, I want to taste sugar. Said my, my, the implication was, I don't want to be God, I want to experience God. Of the four yogas or spiritual disciplines of Hinduism, two of them, Zana and Raza, tend to align with Sakanan, and two, Kama and Bhakti, with Ramanuja. These, these four yogas fit four different personality types, intellectual, experimental, active, and emotional, respectively. I would I would say there's a uh, really only two at the like, broad categories of uh, personality types, um, reflective and active, um, and they can then have many different subcategories, whether it be intellectual, experimental, that kind of stuff. But really, at the core, I would say there's this reflective and act and uh, and active. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of this is kind of just like going over my head because I know it's yeah. kind of basically talking about monism, basically that all is one and that it's basically we're all an illusion in the brahman's uh mind and so i don't know it's a lot man it's a lot it, it, it's, it's a there's a lot there's a lot to hinduism and it's, it's 
That's why I really can't stand Western people who talk about Hinduism because they just talk about the meditation and the stressing. I mean, even your co-host, um, Loren- Lorenzo. Lorenzo. I don't know why. I don't know why. I always think. I always think his name's Afonso. <laughs> um, <but laughs> Lorenzo. Lorenzo had a comment the other day where like actually yoga is pretty good for stressing. I'm like, yeah, getting stressed out by demons. It's- well, I think it's because like the idea is that like in secular age that just that yoga doesn't have any doesn't have any like connotations of having to do with Hinduism necessarily. It's yeah. just the stretching things. It's like you think DDP yoga. You, they yeah. think DDP yoga essentially. It's like usually they material they have a materialist view when they materialize yoga to just the stretching, or they have an intentionality view that it's only if you are intensely doing it. So um, I mean, would I, you would you say that it's acceptable if you just like call it stretching essentially and not like? No, because I would say they are would we can uh perfectly connected. So uh, I'll give an example. Could an atheist in a plane crash? Uh, an atheist is um same example driving and a car. Uh, uh, an example. An atheist is about to die and he makes a sign of the cross and lives. Okay, did he? But he decided like he was raised Catholic, which is like a reflective accident. He just saw other people do it and started to do it. But then God, recognizing that, could act on that and see that as an accident of what was making the sign of the cross and act on that. So the intentionality did not matter in that effect. It was the action that caused the reaction from God. But wouldn't the intention matter in that it, case? It just, intention does matter because but like, I don't think it know, has to matter. I think it. I think it does, right? I mean, it's like it comes down to that question, right? Like, are they genuinely say repenting? Mm. Well, let's just let's, let's just turn this back to the yoga one. Um, let's use Ouija board as an example. Oh, it's just a fun game I'm playing with my friends, you know. But is that also the your intention is to have fun with your friends? But see, but I don't it, think you, know, you can. I don't think you can separate the use of a Ouija board from like. Yeah. and the, I don't think the, you can separate from that yoga. But you don't think there's a separation of just like, hey, just doing the stretching thing for like some no, form of exercise the, the directly, from the meditative the, Hindu part of it. I think the direct, I think the stretches are directly tied to the accent. So, so in do, the same you think there's, do you think there's associated. so at what point does stretching become yoga? When it's the specific poses and then the name of yoga with the specific breathing to match it. And I I, 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 I would have to maybe look more deeply into yoga to get this precise, to get to really draw this out into specifics. But I would say if you are doing yoga, what's does the breathing practice along with the stretching? I would say that it's a, that is the, the you are doing unknowingly the demonic worship poses. Um, but could but you, you that, like doing, say like about somebody who's like doing like a dance, like somebody who's dancing and they like say they're just like a, a probably like a secular dancer and they're just like. They're they're doing the very stretches and like breathing exercises because that's part of like conditioning for their for their art. And so, would you consider that w- like at what point? This, this feels like the beard, you know, the beard analogy that that Matt Frad and Connor mm-hmm. always reference, right? Like you don't know the point at which it becomes a beard, but you can kind of tell based on observing if it is. Yeah, yoga's a tricky one. Um, I'm starting with Father Chadwick Berger, who's an um, um an exorcist on yoga. Um, but it, I will admit it is a tricky one because it is a, it is just breathing, which is you know a lot of things have breathing. I mean, naturally speaking, our bodies. If you do a inhale, hold four seconds; exhale, hold four seconds four times, that will help you calm down. It's like a there's like a no there's like a neurological reaction that happens when the body does that. Um, but then also there is so intensity does I think you're right intensity does have to matter. But I, I don't want to be 
too much on intentionality because they're off. I, I mean, I have AC's plan to tarot cards because they think it's funny, you know. And I would say, I don't think you can just the intentionality doesn't work that well, you know, it might have an impact, but I don't think it works that well. So See, I would just I would yeah. just argue that I think there's obviously there's like stretching that wouldn't be considered part of it. And that there that obviously wouldn't be considered part of it. And then that way, if you separate the intention of, oh, I'm doing this for X thing, then it just becomes stretching. Whereas you for like a tarot card, there's not a practical use of a tarot card that doesn't that can't divorce the the purpose, uh, the purpose and end of, you know, X, Y. I mean, or, or, I would or, say if you if a, the big uh, devil's advocate atheist argument, it's just funny and it's about the same fun as a fortune cookie, you know. Um, and so I don't know. I think there's a, when it gets to, when it comes to intentionality and, um, opening the opening doors for demons, there's a, there's a line that is, I don't know it's, it, how to determine that line. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I just, I just don't know how to, ex- I just don't know how to rationally explain this to, to somebody who's like yeah. approaching, like say, oh, I just want to do DDP yoga because I want to get more exercise as like an older person. Yeah. I kind of know how to approach it and be like, no, that's Hindu demon stuff. I would, I would, I would, if I had that in that situation, I'd kind of go for the argument from, um, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, natural intolerance of us. It's like, that's, that's an Eastern saying. We don't fully understand it. And if you don't fully understand it, don't practice it. And if, you, if you can't figure out the line, go with Carson. Yeah. Okay. Just, you know, just send me send me a link to like a video of uh, a father Ripper, uh, father father Chad Riffenberger uh, do, we'll do talking it. about this, so that way I can send it to some people. Okay. We but have, anyways, let's let's continue. A bit, yeah. Philosophy or religion? <laughs> Hinduism is a philosophy as well as a religion. In the sense that both Sakana and Ramadzun Ramadza are both using both use philosophical reasoning. But only to explain, not to prove their religious experience. Their primary story is not reason, but esoteric, private, mystical experience, which trumps both the ordinary reasoning that comes from ordinary, non-mystical experiences, and also ex- um, exotic, public written religious authority. Western religions judge the esoteric experiences of their mystical mystics by their exoteric scriptures which they believe to be divinely revealed, but Eastern religions interpret the exoteric scriptures by the esoteric mystical experiences. That's Hindu like relativism. Really does. Um, Hindu mystics often claim to transcend the very law of non-contradiction itself, but are the ultimate flaw of logic for the same mind Brahman for the same mind, Brahman can dream opposite dreams, and if all dreams are equally real, being Equally, only dreams of the same mind and opposites, and even contradictory dreams are both can both be equally true. So, is the rational philosophy of mystical religion is a philosophy that it, that it makes philosophical claims about reality and the self, but it is not a philosophy in that it does not appeal to universal human reason as its final authority. It is also philosophical in this in that it's a worldview that logically entails a life view. It is a version of reality that has enormous consequences by transforming one's life if one if one believes that all things and persons in the world um, in the world are really only one and the same perfect divine reality, one will have n- nothing to fear. Attaining this enlightenment is called Maki release because it releases one one not only in the thought 
sought from the illusion of finitude, but also in the practice from the desire and fear of that mistake, blind fear. The mistake that illusion, that mistake the that mistake that illusion for reality before enlightenment. Uh, we are like children so engrossed in a book that we do not realize that all the desirable candies and fearful monsters we see in the pages are only images. After enlightenment, even death will cease to appear fearful, for one's very soul as well as body will be seen to be no more and no less than an image of a dream of Brahman. Reincarnation too, the soul returned to earth after death and as the body is seen by the enlightened mystic as only a symbol or miss, an image or a dream, for since Brahman the only self, it follows that Brahman is, only, is the only reincarnator, has the upasat Upanishads. Upanishads. Upanishads argue the logical argument are not for Maki release, are not for release has a conclusion, but from from it is as a premise. The typical Western mind, whether religious or secular, tends to be skeptical of this monism for many reasons. One, because it seems to depress the value and reality of the many. Two, because it seems to depress the value and reality, especially of the individual human person. Three, because it seems to encourage us to simply ignore and disbelieve in death, pain, and evil rather than taking them seriously and fighting them. Four, it seems arrogant to claim that one's ultimate identity is really divine. Five, it seems to remove one, move itself from rational critique. And six, because it seems to reduce morality to a means for purifying self-desires in order to attain mystical enlightenment. Rather than taking morality, its ultimate seriousness as a response to justice or the will of God. A Hindu philosopher would reply that each of these six criticisms rests on questionable assumptions that manliness, personal evil, creaturehood, reason, and morality ultimately will. How could you resolve this an argument? Hinduism contains or in Braces more than one philosophy. Some distinguish six. Sakana is the oldest, most classic form of Hinduism, often called the Veda, Vedana. Vedanta. Vedanta Hinduism, because it it harks back to the earliest Hindu scriptures, the Vedas. It is also called Advaita non dualism. I don't have much to say. I have a lot to say, but it's all just racism. All right, should I continue on to the Buddha? That's another fun one. Let's do the Buddha. All right. So, is is do you know how to pronounce his like proper first name? Let me read it and give it a try. Gautama the Buddha, five sixty three to four eighty three PC. Gautama. 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 Okay, I'll trust you. Buddha, like the like Christ, is not a name but an honorific title. It means the man who woke up. A Buddhist is essentially one who believes that Gamata Shiddhartha was the Buddha, the supreme awakened man, and that the meaning of life is to be a Buddha to wake up. The essential experience of Buddhism is enlightenment or awakening or nirvana, which is which means literally extinguishing, the extinguishing of ordinary consciousness and desire, as all the thoughts, desires, and fears of a dream are extinguished when we wake from sleep. This mystical experience is somewhat comprehensible even to us non-mystics who have never experienced it by the analogy of waking up, for nirvana is a bit like what actually happens to each one of us each morning. The extinguishing of one mode of consciousness, dreaming, and its replacement with a radically different mode of consciousness, wakening. It is not a new ingredient uh, uh, in the world, but a whole new world. Even more than that, it is not just a new world, but a new kind of world and a new kind of consciousness. 
The story of Gautama's um, own enlightenment is dramatic. His father was a king in India some 26 centuries ago. A prophecy at his birth said that this child would be either the greatest world-conquering king or the greatest world-renouncing ascetic and mystic. In order to make the first half of, prophecy, of the prophecy come true, Gautama's father tried to make kingship totally attracted to his son by surrounding him with palace luxury, allowing nothing bad to enter, enter and not allowing him to leave. But the curious youth escaped four times and saw the four distressing sights, a sick man, an old man, a dead man, and a begging man. No one could tell him <laughs> why anyone got sick, old, or dead, but the... Be- but the begging man was an old Hindu ascetic who was who was re- renounced the world to solve the, the great riddle of life. Thus, Gautama left the palace, joined the ascetics, the sannyasis. Well, I don't know, and practiced the set, the set, the set, the severest self denial for years. But he came no closer to solving the great riddle. Finally, he took a decent meal for the first time in years, thereby scandalizing all but five of his ascetic friends who became his first disciples. This was his first discovery, the middle way between self-indulgence and self-mortification, neither of which has produced enlightenment. He then sat down under the Bodhi tree in the Deer Park in Benares. It's still there. It resolved not to rise until he had read the riddle of pain. When he arose, he said, I am Buddha, and announced the Four Noble Truths as the essence of his enlightenment, insofar as it could be put into words at all. Perhaps the most important words are those that it cannot be put into words, that all words deceive. This is also the very first point in Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, see chapter 6, that the Tao that cannot be, can be told is not the eternal Tao. Honestly, that that's an interesting thought, because I know it's like, um, we can kind of ascertain br- rough ideas of, say, like the Trinity and of of the divine nature, but we can never fully comprehend those or put them into yeah. a language we, only, that we, we only, understand it and can intelligize. We only know it from what it is not. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's an, that's not analogous. That's something that like, uh, this Latin had four different words for analogous, and we only have one, so we can't really use it. Um, but please continue. When a disciple, disciple whose name I'm not going to even try to pronounce, demanded that Gautama answer the four classic philosophical questions that all the Hindu sages had answered, he refused and gave him the arrow sermon instead. He told the the disciple whose name is too long and complex the story of a man who was dying with a poisoned arrow. Before he, he allowed the doctor to heal him, he demanded an explanation of all the details of the shooting. The shooter, his age, his clan, his motive, the arrow, the feathers of the wood, etc. The man would die before the arrow was out, and you are that man. The arrow is suffering, and Buddhist treatment is not philosophical explanation, but radical surgery, an extinction of the organ that suffers, an operation to remove the cause of suffering, which is desire itself. Well, I don't necessarily agree with the desire thing. I mean, I think that's honestly not a, not a bad line of thought, right? That if you just keep demanding the questions, you'll always be unsatisfied, and so sometimes it's best to just trust the authority figures at some point right like that's why we trust the church like even if yeah. you don't like understand like x y or z doctrine or dogma that's why you just put your trust in in the institution right yeah this 
there is something nice about the Buddhism, um, for lack of a word, radical acceptance of everything. Um, uh, there's a there's a similarity to some of the saints, you know. I think like the Desert Fathers, who were like perfectly fine with nothing, you know. Um, I don't know. There's more to say. I'll wait to the end. All right. So the four noble truths are: to live is to suffer. Du- dukkha. The word literally means a bone or axle out of joint, a stick broken in half, alienated from itself. Suffering pervades all of life. If you love or hate anything at all, something you hate is always present and something you love is always absent. Thus, you always suffer something. The cause of suffering is desire or tanha, grasping, greed, egotism. This is the most essential step in in a medical analysis, the step you pay the expert doctor for, the diagnosis of the cause of the disease. Here is Buddha's radical diagnosis. We are unhappy because there's a gap between desire and satisfaction, and that gap is caused by desire itself. So it is selfish desire that causes unhappiness. There's a lot of um, Kierkegaard existentialism in these. That's interesting. I noticed that. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know how. There's like, I feel like there's just like little nuggets of truth in all of this, but it's like he takes it to such a radical extreme that I just, I mean, we have examples in our religion of like saints who went too far with their asceticism and angels sort of was like, knock that off. Go eat a meal. Please eat. (laughs) Yeah. Three, Um, the way to extinction nirvana of suffering is the extinction of desire. The third noble truth logically follows from the second for to remove the effect. We must remove the cause. We normally try to close the gap between desire and satisfaction by maximizing satisfactions. Buddha observes that this path never works and advises us instead to minimize desires. In fact, to eliminate them altogether. The Greek Stoics argued similarly, but were content to advise us to merely be satisfied with what we have. Buddha notes that even this causes pain because what we have, including life itself, will soon be taken from us. So he teaches not just a rational acceptance of the inevitable like the Stoics, but a mystical transformation of consciousness, a desire ectomy. The Stoics tell us to submit desire to reason, but Buddha tells us to submit it to the knife. Desire is a wild animal, Stoicism says, tame it, but Buddhism says, kill it. Four, the way to extinguish desire is the noble eightfold path. The fourth noble truth tells us how to do that surgical desire ectomy. Human life, inner and outer, is divided into eight dimensions, and in each of them, desire is to be minimized until it reaches zero. At that point, the bliss of nirvana replaces the pain of desire. The four noble truths are, for Buddha, the closest that words can come to explaining the way to the wordless. They are utterly logical. They they follow the, the essential logical structure of all practical thinking, giving us the bad effects, the bad cause, the good effect, and the good cause. Or in medical term, the observation of the symptoms, the diagnosis of the disease, the prognosis of the cure, and the prescriptions for the treatment. This is extremely useful because all other practical philosophers' analyses of the human condition follow the form of these four steps, even if their content differs from Buddha's. For instance, Jesus' four noble truths are 1. Death, 2. Sin, 3. Eternal life, and 4. Divine grace. See Romans 6.23. Socrates' four noble truths are one vice, 
two ignorance three virtue and four wisdom so essentially i i feel like it's important to kind of spell that out so for jesus it would be the the symptom is death the cause of that the diagnosis of the disease is sin the prognosis of the cure is eternal life that's the basically the end goal and then the prescription of the treatment is divine grace so for socrates it would be the bad effect is the vice the bad cause of that is ignorance the good effect is virtue that's what we're aiming for and then the way to achieve that is wisdom marx's four noble truths are one class conflict and oppression two capitalism three communism's classless society and four revolution to eliminate the bourgeois capitalists before you go on i want to add to the noble truths of jesus saying um i know some people would probably hear that and would think well wouldn't sin cause deaths um and i want well, that's what it's saying yeah i mean it's like wouldn't um I, death cause uh not to have it backwards sorry anyway on that point uh if you want to look more into that read scott Hahn's book on holiness what's he uh he does a deep dive basically on what is holiness and on the part of genesis with, with god's eat this true eat this fruit and that would be the day you slowly die and they eat it and live and then they die and he's talking about spirits of death for lack of holiness and um i, I think you understand, you know, uh, I can't remember Latin, but we understand things through negatives, what it is not. And so, because sin is a privation, we can't fully understand that in itself. We have to understand what is holiness to better understand sin. And so, I just wanted to, I think that's one point that gets missed a lot nowadays. I wanted to reference Gohan's book on it. Yeah, I mean, to, to basically, the holiness is to set oneself apart, set oneself or something apart for God. And so, to, yeah, to, 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 to basically deviate to sin is essentially to set aside for set aside what is meant for god which is everything for other things right yeah i don't know why we make fun of the jews for thinking they can trick god we think we can do it all the time listen i one of the, one of the i saw a meme that was strangely profound where it was like me laughing at judas for having sold jesus <laughs> out for that many pieces of silver and then me realizing i i i sell him out sell out christ every day for free the worst sin of all is you betrayed yourself for nothing, Dostoevsky. <laughs> I gotta get some. I gotta get his collected works. You, just, just read Crime and Punishment, and I think that's really all, the best one. I Everyone do have that. Really Mazza, but it's Crime and Punishment. I gotta um, read the brothers because isn't that about the Spanish Inquisition? I don't think so. I could be mistaken. I thought I heard something about that. It's one of these more Russian authors wrote it, and Christ comes down into the Spanish Inquisition. I'm loosely remembering this. It's like that sounds more like um, Master Margarita, but I could be—I didn't finish that one because it got too weird. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think I heard because Bishop Barron, I thought referenced mm. it. Anyway, before, before you read Dostoevsky, you need to read *Death of Ivan Ilyich* by Tolstoy. It's as much a story to read, and it's a uh, very good. Okay. It's only 113 pages. I'll trust you. All right. So Buddha is like Aristotle in form, though not in content. Where Aristotle discovered the essential logical form of all theoretical thinking, Buddha did the same for practical thinking. There is much more to Buddhism than this, but this is the heart of the Dharma, uh, the doctrine teaching that unites all Buddhists. The main division is between original Therav Theravada, the doctrine of the elders of Buddhism, and later Mahar Mah Mahayana, or great vehicle Buddhism, which revolves around whether enlightenment whether enlightenment should be individual or collective, and two, 
which of the two main Buddhist virtues, enlightened wisdom, prajna, or or desireless compassion, karuna, should come first. Some form of Buddhism aims at changing consciousness by changing desires, which are the cause of the unenlightened consciousness as well as the cause of pain. Other forms of Buddhism, such as Zen, which means meditation, do the reverse. They aim at changing and eliminating desires by changing consciousness. For when we see that the ego and the world are fictions, we will no longer have desires or fears. For we will see that there is nothing there to desire or fear. Like a ch- like a little child in a movie theater, suddenly realizing that the beautiful things and the scary things he sees on the screen are not real. I want to comment real quick on the how do I put this? Um, the not real part is obviously incorrect because these things are real. But the I would say the Christianized version of this is that they're not important because God is good, and if we follow God, we'll end up with Him. That is goodness, and so we don't have to worry about these things you know there's a healthy respect and fearful but i have to worry about them in a sense you know like there's, there's a christianized way to look at this that thing is good but the the whole it's not real kind of thing is well i don't know what it's about uh eastern philosophies and the this denial of realities um i can I tell you man i'm not that. eastern Nirvana. One of the most puzzling philosophical claims of Buddhism is is that in Nirvana or Enlightenment, we see through the individual ego as an illusion. David Hume, 24 centuries later, would teach the same startling conclusion from the very different non-mystic premise of empiricism. According to Buddhism, the ego is an illusion caused by egotism or selfish desire, tanha, rather than selfish desire being caused by a real ego. So if we play knock-knock with ourselves and ask, who's there, we should get the answer, nobody. We naturally ask, then, who is it that is that is doing the knocking and answering? And Buddhism's ultimate answer is nobody. It just happens, like weather. It rains. Who is it? Like clouds of galactic gas coalescing into stars, the strands, skandhas of impersonal consciousness become knotted at birth and unknotted at death. Between those two event there two events, there only seems to be single substantial rope, but it is really only the separate strands. Really, there is no such thing as a person. Only this is realized. There is nothing and no one to hate or fear. A Buddhist parable illustrates this. A man who could not swim, caught by a storm at sea, tries to dock his boat, but was blocked by a second boat, which kept coming between him and the dock. The wind eventually capsized the first boat, and the sailor sinking cursed and shook his fist at the second boat, which had been responsible for his death. But before he drowned, he he saw who had been sailing the second boat. No one. It was just the wind. There was no one to blame or hate, and his fist unclenched, and he realized this and drowned in a state of nirvana. Another parable shows how this mode of consciousness, nirvana, enlightenment, is radically other than our normal one. A man chased by a tiger to the edge of a cliff let himself down the face of a cliff on a vine, but he saw the second tiger on the ground waiting to eat him. He was suspended between the two tigers on a sheer cliff. Then he noticed two mice, one white and one black, nibbling through the vine from the north and from the south. Just before the vine broke, he noticed a wild, a large wild strawberry growing out of the cliff. He plucked it and ate it, and it was delicious. West, <laughs> the Western thinker expects the man to distract to distract the tiger with the strawberry to save his life. But the enlightened Buddhist reaction to the story is, and the man tasted as and the man tasted as good to the tiger as a strawberry tasted to the man. 
for the tiger, the man, and the strawberry are one. Just as in Shankara's um, Hinduism, Buddhism is really a distilled down Hinduism made utterly simple and practical. A Hinduism without the Atman or the Brahman, an Atavan Asi without either Tat or Tavam. This leaves only Asi or it is. This it is at SD in Greek is the same affirmation Parmenides. Parmenides would would soon make in ancient Greece in chapter 15, though Parmenides arrived at a very different path of abstract logical reasoning. The Western perspective. The two main problems that most Westerners have with Hindu Buddhism are its denial of personhood and its denial of the value of personal love as distinct from impersonal compassion, karuna, which is directed to all su suffering beings equal and impartially, including animals as well as persons. These values, persons and love, are historically derived from Judeo-Christian religion. Persons are seen as intrinsically valuable because they are created in the image of God. And personal love, agape, is valued because it is seen as the closest human resemblance to what God is and does. These two values are now well esconed in the heart of our culture and secular value systems, too. See, for example, the United Nations Universal Declaration on Human Rights and a second categorical imperative of Kant, Volume 3, Chapter 64. This is why Buddha's attack on the individual ego, as well as egotism, strikes most Westerners as, kind, as a kind of spiritual euthanasia, curing the disease by killing the patient. But Buddhism reply, Buddhists reply that there is no patient, only the disease. And the disease, Tana, is the cause of the illusion that there is a patient. Mysticism in time. A postscript on mysticism and philosophy. The above ideas are distinctly Buddhist, but there have been many other people in various times, places, and cultures who have also experienced and taught a transformation of consciousness so radical that it could not be expressed in ordinary language. These are called mystics. One of the most striking and challenging philosophical claims common to Buddhists and most non-Buddhist mysticism is the claim that our ordinary time consciousness, uh, samsara, birth and death, is illusionary or at least less real, less true than the mystical eternal consciousness in which everything that ever was, is or will be is present, not past or future. Eternity does not mean time without end, but not time. Here is a Western example of this from the remarkable Winter's Tale by Mark Helpern. Nothing is random, nor will anything ever be. Whether a long string of perfectly blue days that begin and end with golden dimness, the most seemingly chaotic political acts, the rise of a great city, the crystalline structure of a gem that has never seen the light, distributions of fortune, what time the, the milkman gets up, the position of the electron or the occurrence of one astonishingly frigid winter after another. And yet there is a wonderful anarchy and that the milkman chooses when to arise. The rat picks the tunnel into which he will dive when the subway comes rushing down the track from Borough Hall. The snowflake will fall as it will. How can this be? If nothing is random and everything is predetermined, how can there be free will? The answer to that is simple. Nothing is predetermined. It is determined. It all happened at once in less than an instant, and time was invented because we cannot comprehend in one chance the enormous and detailed canvas that we have been given. Everything that ever was, is. Everything that ever will be, is. Though in perceiving it, we imagine that in it, it 
we imagine that it is in motion and unfinished. It is quite finished and astonishingly beautiful. The non-mystic often feels that the claims of mysticism are not fair, since that it is impossible to judge or to even know how to judge such claims with ordinary non-mystical consciousness, i.e. with philosophical reason. But the mystic responds with that this impossibility is exactly what one would expect if the claim is true. And to that I would kind of answer, I think C.S. Lewis kind of confronts this a little bit in uh, Mere Christianity, where he talks about God being transcendent of time, that at any given moment God looks into it looks into everything because God transcends time that does not contradict free will because he's still watching you freely act at that time even if he does also at the say at the next at the future result of your action also see the result of that action like it does not diminish free will it only means that there is rather a lens into which you look into these things yeah I I, I've had a view of time I I just properly called the perspectivist view that time itself is not an actual thing it is simply how we perceive things and so we perceive it linearly um series a temple event a b to c god has a seen all of it at once has a brief view of series of time when he per- perceived literally perceived because he's present in um but what he's perceived because it's the easiest word for us to understand perceives all of time simultaneously so i yeah. can say a prayer today for my great grandma and, you know, say, so, hey, I pray he has a good death. And God, knowing the prayer I would make in the future, has actualized that in that previous moment in time because of him, it's all simultaneous. Which is also why we can argue that, like, the Eucharist is the one perpetual sacrifice on cavalry yep. because the sacrifice with God be with with Christ being God, it reaches through time it's into all moments, moments which, which, which is every mass, and that's. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. It is. We, we we get to tap into the one eternal sacrifice. Yeah. Philosophy of time is a very interesting subject because most people either want to go strict A or strict B, and I'm like, no, no, it's both. There's a golden mean again. Ah. Um, but uh, so I know everyone listening. I noticed this first episode is going very long, and I figured after the first episode, it's, it's be weird to split the stages into two parts, you know. So the first episode is probably going to be the longest one, but from here yeah. on, to be a lot shorter episodes. Yeah, this one will be the longest, and then Socrates, and then Aquinas. Those will be like the top three or something. <laughs> and maybe Mariton and Chesterton at the end. Ooh, is Chesterton in? in here? I believe Chesterton is listed at the very end. Ooh, I'm excited for that. We should bring on Connor to read through the section on that. We should bring on and Connor he can for just, that one. And he can just listen, since I don't know that he has <laughs> the books, or hopefully he'll have listened to this enough to have bought the books to read along with yeah. us. Or he can just get a free try for script and get the free ebook online. Oh, okay. What's uh, anyone listening? If you want to get the ebooks, get on, on script. If you get a free trial and read these all in a month, you're welcome to try. Do you have? Uh, is that what you're reading? Because I'm reading a physical copy. I have a physical copy as well because I don't like okay. reading. I don't. I read on my Kindle if I have to because the books are just ninety nine cents and too cheap to pass up. But I prefer physical <laughs> books. See, I just absolutely despise reading on like a screen. Like, if it's longer than an article, I just can't read it. Mm. I gotta have well, a book. When it's just you know, I I bought the entire works of Saint Thomas Aquinas for ninety nine cents. You know, so it's kind of like I don't like I don't like it, but it's just it's too cheap to pass up. You know, right? Um, I will say I, one book I would never read on my Kindle is Ted Kaczynski. It doesn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a, a Nick Lansby went on a Kindle uh, in a dark room on rooms, but Ted Kaczynski said, "Oh, would be read physically." Okay. All right. So next is Confucius. No, I actually yeah. love Confucius. I have a yeah, he's I have an a interesting guy. Him. 
Uh, the, uh, the analytic, I think it's called, by Confucius, are just fun little places, pretty much. Like it's almost, it's almost like reading um, Pascal's uh, Sartes, the pennies, the uh, pennies, pentes. They're just quick. You read like five and a, read five single bound per other day, go about your day. They're just very fun. I have a soft spot for Confucius. I have a, I have a weird soft spot for Chinese philosophy because that's. It purely la- it lacks a day off, it lacks a say off for a first principle. So it's more just um, purely practical, which is very Chinese in and of itself. And so there's um, I, I much as I can't stand most Eastern religions and philosophies, the Chinese people get a pass because they're kind of this fun. So let's just do this. Let's do Confucius, <laughs> chapter five, Confucius, five fifty one to four seventy nine BC. Confucius, Kung Fu Zhu. Huh. Was born illegitimate. His father died when he was three, leaving his family in poverty. There we have it again. Another philosopher whose dad died. Um, Confucius had to go to work to support his mother. When she died, he turned the family home into a school where he taught history, poetry, philosophy, morality, rules of proper conduct, and the arts. Teaching did not make him enough money to live on, so he took various jobs and traveled to neighboring states to advise various rulers. Oh, he's Connor. <laughs> He was usually unwelcome and unsuccessful there because of his forced rightness and questioning, rather like Socrates. True. Confucius' Confucius' philosophy was mainly concerned with proper and harmonious human relationships. He was the single most influential and successful social and political reformer in history. His system, which was institutionalized throughout China only centuries after his death, kept the world's largest and most prosperous nation together in relative peace, stability, and contentment. For 1,200 years, until Mao Zedong's radically opposite philosophy of class conflict and violent revolution replaced it, perhaps forever, perhaps only temporarily, only time will tell. I will have a slight, not disagreement, but caveat to that. Uh, Mao Zedong was not a pure Marxist. He was they, Mao, um, Mao's Marxism is really a Chinese-specific Marxism, which works in sorts of the Tao and of Confucius. It's, a, it's so Marxism it's a, with Chinese characteristics. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's much more... Um, it's, most Marxists do not consider Mao like most Marxists, like strict Marxist thinkers, don't consider Mao a Marxist. Yeah, that's why they call um, it Maoism. Yes, uh, and that's I think Maoism is the most interesting version of Marxism to study. It's very interesting. Um, also, probably the most interesting Marxist like, uh, revolution, I guess, the way he radicalized students against the professors uh, is very interesting. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot to say about Mao. Anyway. Confucius' character was the ideal teacher, humble, gentle, patient, witty, open, and ever ready to engage in dialogue and questioning, very like Socrates without the syllogistic logic. Confucius lived in 6th century BC, the so-called Axial period, Axial period, during which human consciousness everywhere in the world was simultaneously Becoming more self-conscious, the late Hebrew prophets, the earliest Greek philosophers, Zoroaster and Persia, Buddha, the writers of the Bhagavad-gita uh, in India, and both Confucius and Lao Tzu in China all lived during the same century. That is interesting. Hmm. I, I, don't, I don't make it. It's, it's, it's a, I'm not thinking about that Divine for a while, actually. Divine revelation reaching down into the world. Simultaneously? Doesn't... Dis- doesn't in- no, well... Well, divine revelation reaching down into the world's effects aren't always dispersed evenly across all nations. Yeah, I'm just thinking it's interesting that he's a, like, the 
the graces to understand truths of things was all put out at the same time. That there's like a surging of um, divine graces to understand things simultaneously across the world. Now, just a I'm going to meditate and think about that for a while. Not meditate in the gay way. I mean, it's like think about it and contemplate it for a while. Meditate in the atomist way. I really hate how I can't say... I, I said I meditate on things, and I got yelled at by a Protestant dude one time at, um, when I was like eight. And I'm like... I was like probably 14. I'm like, dude, I'm just thinking about shit. Like, calm the fuck down. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, in China... This was the period of warring states, a time of violent civil wars, tradition and breaking down. A generation gap was opening up, dividing China from its own past as well as dividing generations of its present citizens against each other. I think that's a constant theme in Chinese history. Chinese history be like, revolution happens, 12 million people die, peace, peace reigns. <sighs> I, I'm still not fully convinced China's a real place. It's like Canada. I'm not fully convinced it's real yet until I see it myself. Because it, it just seems too wild to be real. <laughs> okay. It's just until I, it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, I believe in the atom, but never seen them. But China, I got to see, I never, I, I got to see a Chinese person and you heard of China and Chinese, but Chinese person from China. I'm so convinced it's not real. Okay. Uh, Confucian reforms were not successful, not institutionalized in his own lifetime, but after his death, they became so popular that no philosopher in history has ever had more of a total influence over the minds and lives of more people. He was known simply as the first teacher. Every school child memorized his maxims, and every family lived by them for two millennia. And there is a puzzle here. When we... Uh, I got to turn the mic real quick. I'm trying to get more light on my book so I can read it, but I got to turn the mic to get the angle right. Mm. Okay, there we go. Some guys are starting to hurt reading in the dark like that. Uh, what was I had? Um, here's when we when we reread like when we read the collection of his sayings, the analytic analytics, in light of his the success story, we are amazed by our lack of amazement at them. <laughs> the philosophy seems to consist of nothing but safe and obvious platitudes, plus fiercely detailed rules for good manners. Perhaps those are the two. Perhaps those are two of the things we ourselves have forgotten and need to return to. Confucius is an an arc conservative. Uh, arc conservative, tradition, arc conservative. Tradition was sacred for him, but it worked. And this and that it was a fundamental argument for it. It was human and humane, and therefore it worked for human beings, leading them to live more live live more human and happy lives. Can philosophy do anything more important than that? Confucius, like Aristotle, habitually chose moderation and middle position between extremes. For instance, two opposite political philosophers at his time were Mao, Ze- Mao Zedong's mm, Moism. Moism, chapter 7. There was taught people that people are essentially good and that all, love is all you need in the philosophy of the so-called realist which solved all political problems two words. Hit them. Ah, so- the, political, the political divide. The Beatles to Black Sabbath. Rousseau, Machiavelli, or Hobbes are close Western equivalents to these two. Kreft really has the disdain for Machiavelli. Um, and I, I get it. He has the disdain for Machiavelli's like, uh, pure practical view of politics, but he's viewing it as a philosopher and not the guy who has even happy to make political decisions. Wasn't Machiavelli literally just an advisor to, a, to French kings? 
pretty much an Italian king, I think. Italian until he was king. until he was exiled. Oh yeah, the, the name um, should have said enough. Machiavelli. Yeah. yeah. So like I, I, I get it. He he also blames him for like the, he thinks his uh political style affected a more strict imperialist schools of philosophy and led to a pure like uh, uh power, Nietzschean power dynamic thing. And I don't think he's necessarily wrong. I just think he's attributing more to Machiavelli than is necessary because he's a political thinker first, not a philosopher. And so he's taking political but claims see, into meta- metaphysical claims. And I, I kind of see, disagree. he's still a philosopher because politics is just applied ethics. Yes, but when it gets to later periods in time after the Romans, there becomes a distinction when people separate the schools or they separate the actions. And I think to be fair to them, we have to categorize them as they would categorize themselves to put their ideas in context. Like, I don't think Machiavelli would take his political ideas and apply them to his metaphysical ideas because he didn't write anything on metaphysics. And so I think to be fair to him, we shouldn't apply his ideas to metaphysics. Okay, fair enough. But that's, 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 that's actually the only disagreement I have with Kraft. <laughs> that's the only one. I read his, he has a book on Socrates meets Machiavelli, and it's just Socrates hammering Machiavelli over the head for everything. And I'm like, you're not doing justice to Machiavelli here, Kraft, <laughs> Professor Kraft. You're not doing Stop. justice here. He's already dead. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... It was very, very off-putting. I read that book before I talked to Owen McIntyre about Machiavelli, and I kind of had a, I didn't know how to use any of that information at all. Um, and the one, the one unreleased episode of this, one of two unreleased episodes of this podcast, Romans Owen McIntyre. Um, what was we at here? What's um, we show Machiavelli and Hobbes are close Western equivalents to these two. Confucius deliberately shows a middle position: man is not born either good or evil, but is able to be good by being trained and taught rightly. Just as the case was a key to the good life and a good society, this was essentially Plato's answer too. Confucius, Confucius' moderation and dry, why, dry, why humor are seen in the following anecdotes. These are fun. When the skeptical Tasi Ro was sought Confucius too close to the Moist because of his altruism, said to Confucius, if someone said there was a man in a well, the altruist, I suppose, would go after him. Confucius replied that even an altruist would make make would first make sure there really was a man in the well. An overly rationalistic and care Careful Sinker said he would sing three times before acting. Confucius supplied twice as sufficient. <laughs> I, I, I gotta say, I love Confucius because he, he is um, the Chinese version of Aristotle and, and Socrates combined, which is golden mean and witty humor. Listen, I can he's I can appreciate fantastic. this. If he's not making like bold metaphysical claims of like, yeah. we are all one or there is nothing real and he's just being like witty and smart, I can just appreciate yeah. that. He's, he's fun. The five virtues. Confucius taught five fundamental virtues, each of which is deeper and more complex than any single English word to translate it. English really does suck for philosophy. <laughs> the most fundamental is Jen, which is basic goodness, goodwill, benevolence, and human heartiness. This, the Chinese character is a combination of two and man, showing that this is the most fundamental of all relationships to others. Confucius formulated the basic rule as do not do to anyone what you do not want them to do to you, a corollary of the golden rule that is, this has been called the silver rule. The silver rule. A second virtue is the Sunzu. Sunzu. Shunzu. Which means 
lordsness of spirit, the opposite of pettiness. It literally means the superior per- person. The person big in spirit, not necessarily in body. The virtue makes room in itself for everyone and expresses itself in hospitality. Hosp- hosp- mm. I know the word. I forgot to say Hospitality. It. Hospitality. Thank you. Hospitality, maturity, and taking responsibility for others' happiness. A third virtue, li, meaning what is proper, fitting, or appropriate. In other words, proper means a canny psychologist Confucius knew that careful, deliberate external acts of towing the line obeying rules powerfully trained and coordinated us to personal moral virtue by constructing habits of obedience. There was elaborate rules for how to treat different members of the typically very large extended family, and life became like an elegant ballroom dance. Lee also concerned the proper use of language and the reflection of names, for if language is not in accord with truth of things, no affairs can be carried out to success. That's actually a really good line for talking to people who have the whole uh, words don't mean anything. Listen, I like that. Uh, properly entitled the golden mean, nothing to excess, self-control, moderation behind this behavior, which was emphasized by the Greeks, is almost the very definition of civilization as opposed to barbarism. Perhaps this is why Gandhi had in mind when he when asked what he thought of modern Western civilization, he replied, I think it would be a very good ideal. <laughs> I, hate, I hate how Gandhi has witty quotes. He has two really good quotes. That's one of them. A fourth, fourth virtue, T, means spiritual power or the power of moral example. The power of moral heroes, a world without heroes is a world without ideals and therefore without morality. Instead of might makes right, Confucius taught the right makes it might. T is the beauty, the attraction, the spiritual gravity and radiates from the saint. Finally, when, when means the art of peace. Confucius deeply appreciated the arts he once he once could not taste food for three months because of a musical melody moved him so deeply. What? Give me the arts. He could once he once could not taste his food for three months because a musical melody moved him so deeply. Okay, I guess. Art was to be pursued for uh not for art's sake, but for man's sake, for morality's sake, for peace's sake. Art trains the emotion to love what is beautiful and conditions the world to love what is oh, good for the beautiful. Okay. I, I understand what it's saying there. It says he could not want he could not taste his food for three months because a musical melody moved him so deeply because his senses were so overwhelmed that he was not able to use his other senses because they were so infatuated with this music. That's wild. That is insane to me. I don't know. Maybe it's because I was that was me with food. That was me with some of the mac and cheese that was served at. At at, the, at Mises during an event. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the word to love what is good for the beauty, beautiful, and the good are almost the same thing. The Greeks sought the same and had a single word for both: aesthetic and moral goodness. To clone, to clone, clone, define the noble, the beautiful, and sometimes to clone card to a. Uh, I'm not even gonna try the Greek. The beautiful and the good. Two cologne, Kai, two agathon. 
Yeah, fuck Greek. Um, <laughs> Confucius is a clear example of virtue ethics. The science equivalent of Aristotle, modern wisdom, by contrast, typically tends towards some good, more rationalistic, rule-oriented, egotistic ethics, such as hedonism, the good equal pleasure, stoicism, the good equal inner peace, utilitarianism, the good equal useful, emotivism, the good, a projection of your personal preference. I really hate emotivism. Kantian, Deontologism, the good, equal to moral duty. The social contracts are the good and artificial construct. Cultural relativism, the good equals cultural construct and consciousness. Or biologism, the good equal evolutionary survival value. Yeah, I think all of those, but like... It's stoicism. All materialism. <laughs> all of those, but stoicism kind of suck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Confucianism is a... Co- well, technically... Tech, really, real quick, stoicism, if good equals just the inner peace, isn't the most inner peace you're going to find in the fullest yeah. relationship with God anyway. So, yeah, right? I think I think disobedience take on stoicism is that it's like we fulfilled stoicism to make it to its peak form where it's like you are not just concerned with inner peace of yourself, but fulfilling, accepting whatever position you're in and doing God's will in it. You know? Um, I, 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 was, I was baffled by that. So I'm having um, Cacadia. Cacadia? How do you say this? I don't know his handle on Twitter, um, but you know the Anglo Libertarian guy Baz. I'm having him. I'm, I'm having him on tomorrow at four a.m. So I, he was a Stoic before he was a Christian. So I'm asking about it. Okay. Um, is common sensical, psychologically perspective and satisfying system. What does it lack? What does it lack? And we who find Confucius a bit boring simply spoiled Zayd and Sallow. Perhaps Lao Tzu, our next boss, will answer that question. All right. Socrates, Jesus, Confucius, and Buddha by Carl Zaspers. That actually does sound pretty fun. Hmm. That might be an interesting read. I'm going to let that one down. Anyway, any any thoughts on Confucians? Confucianism or Confucians before we go to the next one? I don't know. It just sounds sharp and witty, and I kind of like it. Obviously, it's not an all-encompassing philosophy, but I don't see anything like too uh, overly objectionable about it at all. It's just like it's- an, a lack of the fullness of a revelation. <laughs> It's definitely a fun read, the analytics. If you ever get a chance to read the base, so what? Just pick it up. Buy you can buy a copy like five bucks, and every few days just read like five five little lines of his, and it's the fun. All right. So, Lao Tzu, or uh, sir, be, uh, born around six oh four BC. Lao Tzu, or Lao Tse, Lao Zi, may have lacked something no other philosophers in this book lacked, real existence. Some philosophers, <laughs> some scholars believe he was a myth. He, like, Chris is like, he, he might not be real. There's actually a lot of people nowadays who claim Socrates wasn't real, and to them I say, fuck off. Listen, listen, this might be the closest we get Crave to accepting like Hinduism and Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> Lao Tzu is not real. Thus, nobody is real. Lao Tzu <laughs> deduces, I am not real. Thus, what I existence. perceive is not real. Thus, the world is not real. Okay. Uh, his name simply <laughs> means the old man or the old master. His dates are uncertain, ranging from the 13th century to the 3rd century BC, but most texts locate him in the 6th century BC, which Carl Jaspers calls the axial period of the development of human consciousness. According to the old records, Lazu and Confucius are the only two religious founders who ever met e- who who ever met each other. 
Confucius wrote of the meaning, I know a bird can fly. I know a fish can swim. I know a- animals can run. Creatures that run can be caught in nets. Those that swim can be caught in traps. Those that fly can be hit by arrows. But the dragon is beyond my knowledge. It is sent into heaven, into the clouds, into the wind. Today I've seen Lao Tzu, and he is like the dragon. The practical man of reason and, and the common sense Confucius respects the romantic and mystic Lao Tzu, even though he does not understand him. We do not know what Lao Tzu thought of Confucius personally, but he was so disillusioned with Confucianism as a set of rules that he left the cities of China where Confucius was teaching and rode on a water buffalo into Mongolia, never to return. Such was his fame, however, that the gatekeeper would not let him through until he had shared his wisdom in writing, something that he, like Jesus, Socrates, and Buddha, had never done. He took three days to write the 81 short poems of the Tao Te Ching, Give give them to the gatekeeper was let through and was never heard from again. The, the <laughs> what a story! What a Chad! <laughs> I'm gonna wipe my water Wakes up, in Mongolia. <laughs> wakes up, confuses Confucius. Never writes anything down. Writes everything down. Escapes to Mongolia. Never elaborates. I love him. Well, I, I believe Lao Tzu was the guy who did the. Uh, I could be mistaken, but he, he was the Tao. And I think he also was the Yin Yang. Yes, yes, we're about to get to that. So the okay, basic, good, good. The, the basic tenets, the four fundamental concepts of the philosophy of Lao Tzu are one, Tao itself; two, Tay, the power of Tao; three, Wei Wu Wei, doing by not doing; <laughs> and four, Yin and Yang. Tao, are oh, you doing the disses? Wei Yu Wei. <laughs> Doing by not doing. <laughs> I'm having too much fun doing this. Tao simply means the way. Means simply the way. It is a the the way of life of the sage in conformity to b the way of nature, which in turn manifests c the way of ultimate reality. The three Taos are one. Like Buddha and other mystics, Lao Tzu says this Tao cannot be put into words. The Tao Te Ching begins by saying that the Tao that cannot be told is not the eternal Tao, which reminds me of how John really starts the gospel of John talking about how you could not contain uh, on this earth, all the things that could be written of Christ, which is also to say like, which is not only to say like Christ did a lot of things on earth, but also that like Christ is in to a certain point, we can't fully comprehend him, even though he was like, fully human as well because he's also fully divine which is beyond our understanding right Mm -hmm. so Tao is not manifested in words and rules like Confucianism but in things and events in nature it is like water water is the Taoist favorite natural image humbly quietly and gradually conforming itself to other beings and nourishing them it is like a woman's womb another favorite image um, fruitful and giving of itself and bringing forth fullness up from its own inner life-giving empathy, emptiness, not instilling on its own will and way, altruistic rather than egotistic. In this latter way, it is like Confucianism. In this apparent weakness, it is the secret of power, Tay, like the power of gentle raindrops patiently wearing away rocks, compared to the Christian image of Christ as the Lamb of God. The Tao Te Ching itself manifests the subtle and winsome power, the Tay of the Tao, over the reader's spirit. The book practices what it preaches. Be prepared to have what hap- have that happen to you when you read it. It is like a gentle sunrise. Thanks, Crave. That's very vague. 
Uh, the lifestyle that plugs into this Tao is one of way, woo way doing by not doing. This is the paradox of power through weakness, creativity through conformity to Tao, riding Tao like a soul surfer on a wave, letting Tao come in one end of the soul and out the other. Taoist art is simple, natural, and mysteriously powerful like Tao itself. Lao Tzu applies way, 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 even to politics. He tells rulers to govern large nations as you cook small fish. Suppleness rather than rigidity is the ideal, being like stem cells or like the, the flesh and male malleable habits of babies rather than the brittle skin and settled habits of the old, or like willow trees that bend in the storm rather than the hard oaks that crack. The most valuable part of a bull is the emptiness inside. A bull or a mind that is full cannot receive and grow. You can't use a door unless it opens. Moral goodness can't just come from following <laughs> rules, but from an opening up to Tao. I actually really like that. That's 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 kind of deep. That that's well, a, of course it's deep. No shit. There's a lot of good, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, I mean, just it's, like the kind of radical acceptance of of nature and where things bring you. I mean, it's kind of it all. It brings it back to the. Uh, Augustine thing, right? Our heart is restless until it rests in you. That we had to have this yearning that brings us, and so it's the radical mm -hmm. acceptance of that of that yearning, right? That that mm -hmm. pulls us through. I, I would say it's easy to see why Westerners who have been raised with a terrible grasp of their religion and their religious heritage are easily accepted into easily accept these more Eastern ideals because easily if they're more nihilistically and they can go, nothing is real and I want nothing. They can have peace with their nothingness or they can just say, I am a, I'm like the willow that blows in the wind, just happily going around, you know? And I mean, I, I can understand that, right? It, it, yeah. it sure beats the alternative. Yeah, it definitely does. Okay. For yin and yang, the cosmic feminine and masculine express the relativity of all qualities, hot and cold, wet and dry, high and low, birth and death, pain and pleasure, strength and weakness, even good and evil in the sense of good good fortune and bad fortune. Our attempts to get one half of the dualism without the other necessarily fail because they run counter to nature, the way things are. Wisdom embraces both and embracing the whole, which is the Tao. Each half implies and requires the other. Life is a dance and it takes two to tango. But is this true of moral goods as well as physical goods? Do we have to be wicked in order to be saintly? The Tao Te Ching is next to the Bible, the most translated book in the world, and the one most and one of the most read. It is loved not only by Taoists but also by Confucians, Buddhists, Hindus, and many Christians. It has some startling similarities to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, of course, five through seven, but without the context of a personal loving God. I was like, if anyone wants, it's a good, how do I put this? It's a book. Uh, what, I have it next to me. It's over there. Let me grab it real quick because I want to forget it. Don't worry, folks. We're almost to the end. We have two chapters, which are each like so two pages. It's called The Art of War and Other Classics of Eastern Philosophy. Mm. Um, it has basically the, everything, all the things we've been talking about listed in here. It's just a good a, the art of war, the Tao Te Ching, the Confucius Analytics, the Great Learning, the Duck and the Me, and the Work of Mensis. Um it's a beautiful hardcover. Lots of uh, beautiful I, I don't I want to turn the camera on, but it's a beautiful looking book. And it has everything you need everything worth reading about Chinese philosophy is in here. Um if you want if you ever want to look into it, read into it, this is a book to pick up because it has it all in one. 
All but, right. Well, I mean, I know, I know another an, another thing to add to the list of books I want to read. I want to get. Well, quick, building a know, library. Do you know what the Chinese word for friend and ally is? No, nigga. <laughs> so if I walk up to a Chinese person, I could say ni hao, nigga, and it'd be perfectly, you know, perfectly. So if you walked up and said "What up, my?" <laughs> exactly, it, it's that perfectly. Wouldn't it be wrong. No, I greet all my coworkers with ni hao, nigga, in the morning. It's perfectly acceptable. I'm trying to learn Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> This is really funny how that is just the word for friend and ally in Chinese and Mandarin. Anyway, we have two more to go. All right, so. And the sort ones. So yep. I'll do uh, Mao Zhu. Mao Zhu. On. I, I got one of the sneezes at the end of the nose. Ooh. It's, just, look, it's not going to come out. The five ways of Mozu or Mozi, 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 the founder of Moism, was closer to Jesus' teaching than any other Chinese philosopher. He began as a Confucian, but like Lao Tzu, reacted against Confucius' emphasis on ceremony, hierarchy, elaborate rules, and social order. His main idea is that universal love has a primary human good and the foundation of both the family and the state. One must love all others with the same love as you love yourself and your family. It's, it's interesting that like Ayn Rand is the uh, um and what's the one I'm looking for? The exact opposite, the anticipate. Um how you say that word? The an the antithesis. Antithesis of all Chinese philosophy is Ayn Rand. Yeah, that's fair. Give just, me another reason to not like her. There's plenty of, but I actually, I can't hate her. I can't hate Wand. She's I, I have to. I, I have to. I find her just so bitter and so she's, angry and insufferable. She speaks with the moral authority of a fascist dictator. <laughs> you know, I can't. And she's just so, she's, she's so arrogant, I can't hate her. Like when the editor would try to get her to edit down the like 57 page speech because he couldn't figure out how to end it. And Atlas shrugged. She looked the editor dead in the eyes and said, "Would you ask? Would you edit the Bible?" <laughs> you know, I, I can't. I can't hate her because he's just so. I'm sorry. Old. That just makes me hate her more. <laughs> it's just it's for a woman to be that cocky and arrogant. I have like a. I, I can't hate her. I'd probably slap her if we ever have a medal. But I can't if, hate her. It, I swear, if we get to like the contemporary volume and Ayn Rand is in here, I will throw the book. Interestingly enough, this is, this is the only times Asian philosophers are mentioned are in the first sages, and there are no women mentioned in the entire book. Oh, right. Yeah, let's go, Crave. I, I, would, I, I would say, it's, I, 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 would, I imagine he would bring up St. Edestein, but I guess they didn't really write anything comprehensive. So he wrote a few things before being martyred. I was thinking were all really good, but I imagine if he didn't get martyred, he would be included. But that's a, that's a whole bunch of tangent about St. Edestein. You got to write a history of Christian thought. Very similar um, to this. From Paul to podcast. <laughs> from Paul to podcast. <laughs> and it was Mr. Baron or Jeremy Kubas. <laughs> I mean, I, I think so it would go like Paul and then it would obviously go like Clement. And Ignatius would be very would be right near the front. Ignatius yeah. Antioch. Uh, I think Orson would be probably. I think Orson was Orson before Orson Antioch. Was no, no, no. He was after. He after, was like in the exactly, second yeah. century. 
Yeah, second century. And or like, Ignatius was like early second century, like first, very end of the, the first century. Ignatius also might have been in the Bible, according to some uh, early accounts. There's like, yeah, there's a there's a theory that he was one of the children that uh, that Christ pointed out. And uh, I have the methodology of Herodotus. If it sounds cool, I accept it as true. Is it, so is it fitting it. that it is so? Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, that much as I have my issue with Scotus, that argument from divine fittingness is a beautiful, awesome argument to apply to everything I like. <laughs> I have a there's, a there's a metaphysical argument for the papacy, which is like the most natural form of government is monarchy. Therefore, Christ's church would have a monarchy. Therefore, the Pope is a monarch. Done. <laughs> This, All right. I mean, he's technically he's prime minister. That's a that's a that's a gay way of saying monarch. I'm not no, gonna, no, I'm not gonna call it either, because the monarch would be Christ. Okay, that is true. Yeah. And the Anyways. queen mother would be Mary. Well, I I have to explain the queen mother thing every time I say Mary is the queen of heaven, because uh, people would say Christ is the king of heaven and they want to stop making terrible jokes. I'm like, no, kings in Hebrew, the queen mother. Was the reason you gotta explain all that to him because people are stupid. But anyway, yeah, it's it's kind of like how it's honestly it's like the um it's more like how the English should do it, right? Because technically the the king's wife is not the queen. Mm-hmm. Well, I think honestly, I think it's better when the queen is like the queen mother because then you have a transition. You have, you have a better transition period between monarchs. It's not this king dies, queen's gone. It's, a, it's better. I think the queen mother's thing is a better system for monarchy. But now we're getting into political discussion. Let's get back to philosophy. Or pure philosophy, I mean, the history. Yeah. Um, so here, Mo, Mao so, Zu. Also, so, so we're at we're in the second paragraph of point two. Oh. This morality was unattractive to politicians since no successful state had ever been found on a basis. Uh, on its basis, and because love is not something rulers can control. Compare Machiavelli, who says it is better to be feared than to be loved. For men will love you when they love you, when they fear you, but when, but will, but will but fear you when you when you will. What well, on? It is better. It is, to, it is better to be feared than, than to be loved. For men will love you when they will, but fear you when you will. Okay, there we go. <sighs> Mao Zu, Ma- Mao Zu. Mazi, I'm gonna call him Mao Zu. Mao Zu also taught that the will of heaven was a personal god. He also taught the gods or spirits, something like angels, saw everything we do in life. Okay. Uh, he, he also believed in free will and opposed fatalism. Based. Uh, he also listed three criteria for judging any belief: trace its source, its history; two, examine its present situation, how ordinary people experience it; three, test its future practicability by applying its life to laws and politics. Not bad. Mazu's successor, Mensis or Minsky, um, 286 BC, 89 BC, modified Mazu's universal love to include a hierarchy with unequal loves love family more than strangers and people more than things. Okay. Okay. There's nothing really super objectionable in there. You know, it's just basic, just basic outlines of an idea. Yeah. And the outlines aren't necessarily evil, you know, like some of the other ideas, but okay, not bad. I'm so excited that I get to be the one to read chapter eight. I, I was like looking ahead and I was like, who, who reads which one? I was like, yes. I, 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 I did not notice. I didn't want to read this one. Okay. Well, I'm excited so, to. You can have it. Do so, too much special. Chapter eight, Jesus, 4 BC to AD 29. Because he and his disciples claimed so much more for him, it is usually forgotten that Jesus was also a philosopher. 
For Jesus answers the four most fundamental questions of all philosophers, the question of metaphysics, the question of anthropology, the question of epistemology, and the question of ethics, which, Caleb, I think would this would be a good time for you to explain what those are, because we'll be talking about those more as we go on. So anthropology is the study of human nature. Uh, epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. Question of ethics, everyone's ethics is. Um, and question of metaphysics, which I would say metaphysics is the uh, most foundational understanding of how things uh, change. It's a study of chains, core chains. Um, so, yeah, that, that that's the most basic definition I can give for each of them. Okay. So uh, I think Crave defines metaphysics, uh, metaphysics, which is the study of the truths, laws, or principles that apply to all reality, not just physics, but beyond the meta, those limits, though including them. I think Tain's core, I think study of Tain's core Tain might be my definition of ontology. I might have got that mixed up. I'm actually really interested in, because I think epistemology is, a, I think, honestly, I think it, I think maybe Kant may have gotten something right about you needing epistemology first. Well, you, you technically can't have epistemology first. first. Um, epistemology is always reflective. If you try to start with epistemology, you get all, all, way off the way of this idealism. Uh, I'll go into a quick explaining of like an, um, epistem a proper epistemology. You know, so right now Descartes had this whole like I think therefore I am, mm -hmm. um, which is true. You think you are because you think. However, that's not the second step. If there was nothing to perceive, there'd be nothing to think about. If you were in a room, if you were just a mind, if you were pure nothingness, what would you think about? There'd be nothing to think. Not nothingness in darkness, as your body could feel. I mean, actual nothingness. There'd be nothing to think about. So first, you observe. Then you think that you. Then you observe what you. Then you think about what you're observing. Then you recognize that you are. So you always have to, you, the first thought is always, logically speaking, it's always outside of yourself. Because what you're observing, there always and has so, to be something beyond to interpret it with this from the stimuli of your senses. Yes, so there always has to be an outside thing first. So first, it begins with the experience of the outside world, which is why the Cartes argument is not the Cartes statement is not wrong. It's not. It's not the first step. If you make it the first step, you end up in the realm of idealism where you can never really know that you know anything. Yeah, and that's what that's why I'm really interested in seeing how Thomists eventually critique Kant. And, no, it his... was. If you uh, if you want to go to Kant, it's uh, uh, Zach Maritain's Degrees of Knowledge, which is his gigantic book on metaphysics. What's uh, no one should read because it's too complicated. Just go listen to the podcast episodes Bodes and I have on it. Okay. Going to well, plug the I'm going to plug their content because it's it's not getting enough views for how great it is. And I think it's just too dense. All <laughs> it's right. It's a very dense text, but it's so good. But please continue. Okay. So. His answers to these questions depend on something not original with him, but common to all of biblical Judaism. And one line, the answers are, one, in Jesus' metaphysics, the ultimate reality, the standard, source, and key of all other realities is the one God, the creator, whose self-revealed name is I Am. Two, in Jesus' anthropology, man is the creature who is made in God's image and who is therefore also an I, a person, conscious and free, knowing and willing three in jesus epistemology man's highest knowledge is of greatest reality in jesus epistemology man's highest knowledge of the greatest reality comes through faith and what god has spoken to man the word of god which for christians is ultimately jesus himself in jesus ethics man's fundamental end 
goal and good is the love of God and man. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Mark 12, 30 through 31. Buddhists believe that Buddha was a philosopher too, a wise man and a lover of wisdom, but also something more than a philosopher. For the whole point of his teaching was the transcendence of ordinary rational consciousness until enlightenment. In a similar way, Christians believe Jesus was a perfect and complete man, and therefore a wise man and a lover of wisdom and a philosopher, but also was much more than that. He was and is the end and object of all philosophy, the logos or mind of, or inner word of God become man. Buddhists summarize their philosophy in four noble truths. Jesus' practical philosophy can be summed up in four noble truths. One, the primary symptom effect of, most, of man's most fundamental disease, sin, is death. The diagnosis of the disease, the cause of physical death, is sin, spiritual death, separation from God and the source of all life. Three, the cure for this disease is being born again into eternal life. Four, the prescription that brings about this cure is on, on God's part, the gift, grace, of the one who is named Jesus, Savior, whose honorific title is Christ, Messiah, the anointed one or promised one, and who claimed to be the Son of God, and on man's part, repentance, faith, and baptism, which connect man up with God. The fundamental reasons Christians have for believing all this is Jesus himself. To understand this most influential this most influential man who ever lived, instead of reading later books about him and his teachings, first read the data, the four Gospels. Obviously, this philosophy, which is both the most popular one in the entire world and the most controversial, cannot be evaluated in a short chapter in a short book like this. Therefore, I will not try. <laughs> I love how he ends it. Like, I'm not going to even try. Perfect. Fair enough. A note on Muhammad. Well, well, well first, first. No. Let's not let's not just like skip over this. Well, I mean, I, I think okay. it's absolutely fascinating, right? Like, I mean, like him, Christ being the word made flesh. He is the logos. God is the logos. And if Christ is God, then that means all things mo eventually move towards all, all forms of like ra rational logic lead, lead one to God. Yeah. And natural I, teleology I is towards God. I think that's a, I, think, I think that's a wonderful epistemology, like personal epistemology. Like I will distinguish it from the philosophical one, like the logic by which we reach, we personally reach conclusions is to gauge that against, does this eventually, am I able to logic this way into the necessity of, of Christ? There's a, a great quote from, uh, father, not Cobbleston. Um, oh, I'm going to forget his name. I can't remember his name right now, so I'm not going to say it, but it was a 20th century Neo, uh, 20th century Thomist uh, manualist philosopher. Um, which is the point of all philosophy is to reach truth, so the Christian would be foolish to not avail himself to reveal truth and divine revelation. Um, what I think is <clears throat> building off what you just said, like, you know, if it does it comport to or lead to Christ, you know, does it lead to the God? Um, yeah. I think it's important to keep in mind that when it comes to, it comes to, uh, anthropology or human nature a key thing to always remember is that we are creatures of worship we are always going to worship something and man's natural teleology is to uh, be worshiping god we are all we are geared and ordered towards god towards goodness towards truth and when we worship other things we are privating the 
essence of our human nature by worshiping other things. Right. And like when all these other philosophies are talking about giving up things, right? Like there's, there's a little bit of truth to that. It's just like a deviation. Like we're meant for sacrifice to offer sacrifice to mm -hmm. the, the word, to the telos, to the sunum bonum, right? As, as the a logos. Would say. Yeah. Sigma, the highest, yeah, highest good. Um, I, how do I put this? I'll put this, I'll put this correctly. I understand why he included Jesus as a philosopher. Um, I understand why he, I, 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 if you admit well, it, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, imagine the natural law became a person and to say that this does no. not impact philosophy at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, so I think he had to include him. It's good to include him. I like that he admits that he, um, in the end of the, I'm, I, to summarize all of it in a short book, I couldn't even, I'm not even going to try to summarize all of it in a short book. Um, yeah. But in doing so, how do I put this? Um, there's so much that could be said about it that it would be another, you know, hour long podcast to deal with all the implications of the God man Jesus, you know, uh, and effects of that, effects on everything, anthropology, ethics. I mean, Jesus, I mean, let's just not forget Jesus' uh, death on the cross was a complete turn. Um, uh, flip, flipping the entire con, um, contrived system of morality of the time, you know? I mean, everything was thrown on its head when he came, uh, when he died. And so there's just there's so much that could be said. It's so much about whether anthropology, epistemology, ethics, everything that I think it's just as best to just do a quick question and say, yep, there's all that stuff there. Go read the Bible and talk to a priest and we're going to move on because it's not just so much that could be said. We're not going to try. You know, yeah, fair enough. But yeah, so yeah. our last our last thing to read is this uh, note on Muhammad. Muhammad. Muhammad is one of the three or four most influential persons who ever lived, and the Quran is the most read, recited, memorized book in the world. Yet we cannot treat Muhammad as a philosopher, so there is no such thing as a philosophy of Muhammad. Muhammad was not a philosophical sage like Buddha or Lao Tzu or even Jesus, who after all was a rabbi, a teacher. His claim was to be simply a prophet who wrote the very words and little literally and exactly that he heard from Allah to the archangel Gabriel. The Muslim claim that he came Muslim claim is that nothing came from the mind of Muhammad, only from the mind of God through the prophet. That Muhammad was simply one who listened and responded to and responded or recited the meaning of Quran. So recited meaning of Quran. Who preached and practiced total Islam, <coughs> surrender or submission to the will of Allah, the one God. If this is not true, and the Quran only came from Muhammad's mind, instead that Muhammad was the greatest philosopher who ever lived, at least as far as the nature of of ultimate reality, God, God's word, and morality are connected. Or else he learned the wisdom from the Jews and Christians he met, or it could have been a mixture of all three. I think I mean, the that Muhammad was a, was a Christian, and Islam is a Christian heresy, Muhammadism. Yeah, and I mean, like, I, I think it's very, I, I think what's helpful for, like, us as at least, at least Catholic Christians is that we acknowledge, like, the divine word had human authors, and the divine word worked with, so it's like it had, divine scripture had two authors that it's not like it was literally transcribed by the Holy spirit onto a page that it was the Holy spirit mm -hmm. working through the human authors to protect this scripture from inerrancy. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that makes it so that's a lot. We have a, we have a much more correct burden of proof, like as far as determining these things than say, mm -hmm. 
the Muhammad who claimed that it was literally the word of God. Mm-hmm. Which, when you start to pay, point out like inaccuracies, contradictions, and the like, then obviously, then that becomes a problem because if it's the word of God and God is is kind of like some sort of logos, like that proclaims natural law, then naturally something he proclaims can't nat- necessarily contradict itself. So. Mm-hmm. Love now, Yeah, I wanna, I wanna, Muhammad. I wanna end the Muhammad discussion with this quote Muhammad, from Saint Thomas Aquinas. Allah could command. Apparently, isn't the saying that that Allah could command uh, uh, humans to worship an idol? Yes, they they, are, they hold to what is known as um, divine command theory that morality is only the commands of Allah. So, if Allah commanded you to murder fifty babies, it would end up be more than murder fifty babies. Yeah, and that um, it's kind of that, it, that he's just some like some transcendent figure that dictates law beyond itself, which is yeah, where you kind of it basically is the cliche like God the atheists to argue against. Yes, which is rising crazy. Could, how could God create a rock that is too heavy for him to lift? Uh, the Muslims will probably say yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's Islamic theology is such a mess. And Islamic apologetics are the most hypocritical thing ever. I got into a debate with a few Muslims today on Twitter. Um, and they were trying to argue that the only reason you think Jesus is, Jesus is the son of God or believe in the Trinity is because of John, which was a late addition to the Gospels and therefore incorrect. And they were citing these books by uh, historians disproving the New Testament. I'm like, the guy you're citing believed Jesus was a mystical figure who did not exist. You disagree with him by according to your own religion, you disagree with him. And you're gonna cite him against me? This is ridiculous. Don't that, speak the words to me. I was there when they were written. So here's a couple of requirements on Muhammad. In the case of Muhammad, he seduced people by promises of carnal pleasure to which the concupiscence of the flesh goads us. His teaching also contained precepts that were in conformity with his promises, and he gave free reign to carnal pleasures. And all this, as it is not unexpected, he was obeyed by carnal men. Um, so much of Islam is just... <clears throat> uh, uh, I can't remember his first name, Ibrahim, the guy who wrote Sword and Skimitar and Defenders of the West, uh, books on um, the Islamic wars against Europe and Christianity. Um, said the one reason Islamic fighters fought so well is they had a win win view of, of fighting. Either they win and they get to raid the city and rape all the women, or they die and they get to go to heaven and rape all the virgins. So either way, they were winning. And so they didn't really care how they fought and they just screwed themselves at saying, so they, you know, eventually win, eventually won. Um, it's not a, Islam is not a complicated theology. It is in fact very basic and very stupid. Yeah, and honestly, that makes it like very easy to argue against in apologetics because once you like attack their theological axioms, then it just becomes like a, a matter of like you you fail the most basic forms of logic, like the law of non non contradiction, and so it's like this simply cannot be true. The, the other issue with it is that you can never. I hate to say this, and I uh, have to say it in a very careful way. You can never fully trust an Islamic convert because Islam states that it is okay to fake conversion when Islam is the weaker side of the power struggle. Um, so if Islam converts to Christianity, <clears throat> we might hope that he actually is converting. There will always be that sliver of doubt in the mind unless it's been revealed by God that is to be true, um, that he is just doing it because they are the weaker side right now. And the only way to know for certain is for Islam to become the stronger side. And so we can. It's impossible to ever fully 
trust in Islamic conversion because they have the idea is that false conversions are perfectly acceptable as long as you maintain in your heart worship of Allah. Which is this awful? I don't like that because I want to trust people when they say they convert. But you can because of their own teaching, I can't trust it now, which sucks. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that if they go through something like, say, baptism, then I think I don't think you can necessarily fake that. There were many, many Muslims who faked baptism in Jerusalem. And when Islam came back up, started attacking the Christians who were leading it, ruling it. It's happened in a lot of history. So it's, it's, it sucks because it happens a lot of history where a lot of Muslims will convert to Christianity when they're the weaker side. And when Islam comes back in song, they riot against the Christian leaders. And often attack other Christians on the street. And I was very calm. I can't remember what I think it was. Um, I was one of the Muslim cities. Christian cities are taken by Muslims. We taken by Christians for like hundred years, and a bunch of Muslims converted. But then when Muslims surround the city for seeds, the Muslims in the city started attacking priests and Christians on the street. And they have been they have been you know for like two generations supposedly had been Christian. It sucks. It really does suck, and it puts us in a very awkward position of wanting to have good faith and trust that they actually are converting, but because of their own rules and how they act, we can never fully have confidence in that unless they are a martyr for, Christ, for, for God. You know, or God reveals it to you personally. You know, and it, it's 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 got to be a way to work that out, but I don't know if there is because of how subversive Islam is. Yeah. I don't know. It's um, tricky. <laughs> Yeah, to kind of deviate, I, I think I found that, like in the apologetics game, that rather than try to logic yourself from Aquinas' proof for like the pseudonym bonum, like the rather than try to argue from that to here's why Judaism is correct, Judaism leading into Christianity is then correct. I I, I think it's easier just to eliminate. Like just to, rather not to prove it correct, rather to prove the others wrong, that they ne necessarily fail these logical tests. Mm. And that leaves you with this and leads you with like Christianity and atheism, ultimately. I tend to agree that is better before making a positive case to make a to dismiss the opposition before making the positive case. I'm sure there are positive cases. I just haven't been acquainted with them quite yet. Whereas you get from the pseudum bonum to say, you know, the biblical theology. Yeah. Apologetics is a very, I'm not a huge fan of apologetics. I think it's just making a defense. I mean, I, I get it's needed um, and necessary, but I think it's how do I put this. Um, it makes winning argument the focus, and I think that's not that shouldn't be the focus. Uh, I think I think everyday life should technically be an apologetic that your actions should lead to, um, your actions itself should be a defense of the face, and that oh, the guy lives a good life, kind of thing, like a moral life, uh, and not just like a logical argument against things, um, but. Modern apologetics is also very weird. Um, I think it's weird because it's mainly done by boomers and millennials. I don't know. I, don't know. I just really like listening to Trent Horn. So <laughs> I've, I've soured on Trent Horn recently, which is kind of sad. I still like his books, but he's. Uh, I, I, I'm, I don't have a term for this yet, but it seems like the highest goal of modern apologists is to be on the Daily Wire. 
and in doing so have adopted very weird sociological political views to work within the mainstream go like um like back in the day it was be on MSNBC or NBC you know to do your project mm-hmm. from national news and I don't so know I don't, the different views and I, I think the same know. thing's happening now I don't know man I I mean uh, like I, I I look at like say Bishop Barron going on like the Daily Wire and being like yeah Jesus is the Messiah he's he's the fulfillment of the old of the Old Testament. <laughs> This is Baron is the one exception to every and then, like Michael, like Michael Knowles. Like I was listening to him on the whatever podcast thing recently, like mm. yesterday, and he was ta- talking about like how, yeah, you know, Ben's pretty smart, but you know, he, he's wrong about this. And he's like, oh, well, thank you, Knowles. <laughs> I, I noticed it with uh, Trent Horn, and I noticed it with um, Patrick Aquinas. They've adopted more of like a, a scrupulous Puritan view of things. Um, but I don't it know that I picked up. It could just be that I've been sour. I've been um, soured by uh, Constantinus and the Father Augustine Weta style of uh, apologetics. So that could just be the case with me, you know. But yeah, I don't know. As somebody who's never listened to Constantinus, I I couldn't speak to it. Mm. But anyway, this has been two hours and thirty minutes long. You been. are welcome. It's still not the longest show I've done. I still have my 12 hours show. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought that was going to be 24 hours or something. When I eventually decide to retire from podcasting when I'm 90, um, I would do a 24-hour show where I die of a heart attack and 13 hours in, and it's going to be great. I've decided that's where I want to go. I want to I want to die on stream. That's what I've decided. I want to die on stream. Hey, I want my last It'll be, we'll end the stream after you get your final rights. Exactly. Priest walks in, all on stream, lights off, and I'm like, peace, and I just die. Be beautiful. Um. Anyway, next chat. Next time we open the next time we do the episode, we'll be doing the Greeks. Before I won't get to Socrates. Um, yeah, we're gonna we're probably do like two the or three. Greeks. There's a lot of the. He goes through a lot of the pre-Socratics. What's um. It's good because a lot of Socrates and a lot of Plato and Aristotle kind of built upon responding to the errors of the pre-Socratics. Um, and somebody that's thinking that is absolutely worthless, like Zeno. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's nice to have that basis because I think all the best philosophers come as responding to other yeah. philosophers' flaws, which is why I plan to slay the Kantian revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Someday that'll be me. I'll make it into Crape's book. Kant. I, I've, I've, I've said it before, but Kant's wrong because he's German, and that's all you need to know. I know <laughs> I have a synthetic a priori truth that that being German precludes you from being right. Yes, it's very <laughs> facts. I mean, is, um, there's a reason Hitler, Nazism, the Enlightenment, and Protestantism all came out of Germany. Listen, you know. all I'm saying is, Kant, you're pic- I depicted you as the soy jack. I, predicted my- I pr- depicted Aquinas as the giga chad. What can I say? I can't remember who it said, but someone said, uh, when Lucifer was cast out of heaven, he landed in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> all of a quote. It's so good. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely getting like, I'm, I'm definitely accepting the German pill. <laughs> Uh, I will say next step before we go before we do the next one. I will. I'm gonna go ahead and read ahead and brush up on some of the metaphysics of um of these figures, going through some of my metaphysic books, just so I can have a better way to 
respond answer to my answer. stupid questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll we'll set aside which full which ones we're gonna read through, and yeah. then we will have that ready so that way we'll only read through those and we won't go like this long next time. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. This but, one has uh, just been kind of fun and us jumping around about like oh, various yeah. little ideas about the sages. Oh, right, the sages are definitely. Um, they're not the, I wouldn't say they're not the most interesting ones, but they might be the most fun ones in the bunch. Um, because there is something nice about specifically the Chinese ones about the uh, the simple wisdoms they they produce. It's just practical. What can I say? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, David, any plugs? Um. Well, just before this show started, my uh, my one of my you one of my my podcasts with my good friend Lorenzo every week is chaos was premiering another episode. Uh, but Lorenzo wasn't able to join us because he was doing like you know re- real things in the real world. So I brought on Connor, yeah. our good friend, and so definitely go check that out. We talk about like we, I let Connor cope about Ron DeSantis for a bit, and then we talk <laughs> about like Nikki Haley and Baron Trump being like. The future Augustus Caesar and all that. Baron Trump, the six foot eight guy, six foot eight kid who plays war games on his computer. Legend. He's he's one of us, dude. He's one of us. You know, he has like a, he has some fog anon account on Twitter with 63 followers and he's just sending bangers into the Easter. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, we talk about all that stuff and like whether or not economics is real and all that fun stuff. So, you can go Mm -hmm. and check that out on Every Week is Chaos on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon podcast if you really want google podcast if it's so interesting you all that fun stuff so go check it out there okay uh let's see plugs for me um tomorrow at in six hours uh whatever 4 a.m tomorrow morning uh i will be interviewing baz uh, Kakadia, Kadia, Chad, Chad, something I can't pronounce his Twitter handle. Uh, he used to be Kadia, Kadia, Mercia. Yeah, that guy. Um, got him on at 4 a.m. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be a good, good chill morning stream. If anyone wants to be up at 4 a.m. on a Saturday to listen to it, um, we have no plans, no topics. We're just gonna vibe. So that's gonna be fun. And then next Friday at 10 p.m. EST and 9 a 9 p.m. Central Time, I will be having Matt Erickson on of King Pillard to do a live reading of Belloc's chapter on Muhammadism and his book, The Five, uh, The Great Heresies. And that's going to be really exciting. Um, don't follow me on any social media. Don't acknowledge that I exist. I'm don't. just an illusion in your head. I'm the Socratic dialogue in Caleb's brain. Absolutely. Okay, I think that covers everything. Uh, thanks for like, comment, share, subscribe. Oh, um, the Patreon is back up again for the Thomas Ooh. reviews. Uh, the only b- bonus pizza we offer right now is uh, a merch store. That uh, you have to DM me about because I accidentally got our last monster shut down. Um, I tried to make a teaser of the white trash Socrates, and they told me I was racist and deleted my account. So, oh. if you want, if you want a t-shirt or a hat or something, just DM me, and I will make it and personally mail it to you. And you get access to the uh, Thomas Reviews Discord, which has me, Bodes, Ein, and Has. As, um, as a fellow person on the on on the thomas review do i get access to the discord <laughs> mm. when you make it to the thomas reviews group chat we will we'll add ah, you in okay that's, that's someday that. someday if i'm um, not blocked by somebody <laughs> well, i think now you unblock you unblock kato so you're good 
Okay. Yeah. 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 That was way I, back in the day. I don't remember what that was. I think it was like back when I was like, just, I was still trying to be resistant about Catholicism and, and libertarianism. Yeah. The bad phases we all go through. Dude, you don't even get me started. I was searching for some tweets the other day and I found some of my old libertarian tweets. And I was like, I should just delete my entire account and live in the woods. Just buy tweet deleter and then just upload an archive of all your tweets into it. And then just like clear everything from before, like six I'm, months ago. I plan to do that. I plan to do that tonight. There's so many old bangers though. Like the Zuma Theologica series. I want to keep those. those I think you can mark fun. some, mark some tweets to be saved. Okay, good, good. But anyway, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, like, comment, subscribe, sign up for the Patreon. Uh, give me money. Have a good night. <laughs>